I'm on your home territory. No, I'm not joking. So this whole thing that you're talking about, standing up, your stand-up man. Do you know who else was standing up on my podcast? Do you remember? If you're watching my podcast. I've listened to all of them. I've watched very few, but I don't know who. So. Right. There was a guy called Larry Halavesky. Uh-huh. Do you remember him, the pediatrician? Yeah. He's amazing. So he was standing up. I said to him, are you standing up? He said, yeah. He goes, I stand, I stand and do my podcast. I was like, yeah. oh, wow. I was yeah. like, you look like you're six foot two. You went, oh, that's great. I'm actually five foot seven. <laughs> right, well, I'm six foot two, so maybe I shouldn't stand up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you tower over me. Yeah. So why? Yeah, I, I know like why some people like to stand up. Why mm-hmm. do you like to stand up? Well, initially it was health reasons. So I, I felt really tired at work. So sat down at work, really tired. You know, you, you're looking down at a computer. Um, you're looking down at your fingers. And um, I, I'm a runner like you. I, you know, and I, I want my body to work properly. I want to be energized. Um, and I just knew that standing up at work was, was much more healthy. So in, in, a, in the NHS, in, in my desk jobs, and also in, in, I worked in general practice for the last three years. You know, I got a stand-up desk. I bought my own stand-up desk. Yeah, but you know what it is? I also find that just standing on my own isn't, like, I can't just stand still. I need oh, to move. Absolutely. Yeah, you keep I, need, moving, yeah. I need to move around a bit. Yeah. yeah, well, that's it. You're always, I mean, I never had one of these sort of desk pedaling bike things. You know, I didn't need one of those. But, you know, I'd have a, um, and I did get a wobble board at one point, mm. you know, and you, 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 you know, but you don't need to use a wobble board. You, you can just stand and move your feet and, you know, move, move your position. Because you want to be dynamic. Because yeah. actually when you're static for too long, it puts more pressures on your joints. Yeah. It puts more pressures, you know, on your discs. Um, yes. Your muscles aren't working as well. Yeah, and your whole, your whole um, you know, the, your blood pump doesn't work. You know, your, um, your venous return slows down, yeah, doesn't well, it? Maybe halfway through this podcast, we can like... Um, you know, have a break and stretch your legs and stuff. We'll have a stretch break. But you have to admit, these are nice chairs. Excellent. Very comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> and I've got a great view looking at you, Hamid. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, having a, a table that was, you know, can go up mm. and down and you can stand and sit. It was quite expensive. And I gave up and the dimensions weren't right. And then I thought, my guest might just be like, seriously, you're going to have me standing. You know, at one point I even considered having a podcast, like sitting down on the floor, like having like, you know, like a Moroccan style yeah. Arabian Bedouin, you know, kind of like cushions everywhere. Actually, I struggle with that because I'm not, I'm not as flexible sat down as I probably should be. I've tried doing the yoga thing and, and it, it hurts me too much. So I'm, I'm more dynamic. I like being stood up. Well, see, this is the thing. I just thought if that's the case, some people might, one, not be able to get on the floor and two, might not be able to get back up again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then from standing to sitting down on the floor, I just thought, you know what, let's just stick to a and desk it, and, and chair. It compresses your chest, doesn't it? If you sat down, you know, your, your lungs are half empty and, and you struggle. Well, I struggle to breathe. I've got huge lungs. I need to stand up and expand in my chest. You know? Do you sleep standing up? i not tried that one yet. <laughs> I probably have dropped off a couple of times when I've been uh, you you know, can, working you, too hard. You can try like one of those, um, you know, I don't know if you ever watched Star Trek. They've yeah. got like the Borg thing where you yeah. can like go in and just get strapped while you're standing and then see how that <laughs> I do like lying down. I've, I've just gone for the grounded sheets and the grounded pillow. So I'm plugged in, I'm, I'm grounded all night, the, me and the wife, you know, invested in it two weeks ago and what, what a revelation. 
Oh my goodness. So one of my one of my um former patients, because I'm not a doctor anymore, <laughs> like working practicing. One of my former patients, Jordan Thomas, who's also a listener and supporter. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Jordan. Literally yesterday he sent me, Hey Ahmed, this is the earthing mats that my mum gets. She's an ambassador. There's they're not super cheap, but supposed to be some of the best ones. Mm-hmm. And he's recommending it. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I would wholly endorse it. I mean, I've, I've known about grounding for many years and I've, you know, tried to get grounded outside, you know, when the, it's harder in the winter here in the UK, but, you know, wake up in the morning, get out, bare feet on the grass, look at the sunrise, stare at the sun for 20 minutes minimum, if you can. See, that's the thing. I do about five to 10 minutes. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, enough. now I'm no longer working. It's much easier. But when I was a corporate and, you know, working in primary care, yeah, it's really difficult. But, you know, now I can, I, I do it when I can. Um, so grounding outside, you know, it's harder in the winter. Um, but why not ground all, all night when you're asleep? So get yourself grounded sheet, grounded pillows. And yeah, we were a bit skeptical, but oh my God, you know, our sleep was transformed. We're sleeping so much more deeply. Listen, honestly, this time last year, buddy, I was a bit skeptical. I was like, oh man, like how does grounding really work? But since then, right in the last month, I've spoken to Jared Pollock about yeah. structured water mm-hmm. and he was like you need to have structured water yeah. this easy water and you yeah. get it through the energy the electrons from the earth and that's because the earth is positively charged and this is how we build it I was like ooh and then Jack I just Cruz. yeah then I heard Sarah Pugh yeah. last weekend She's amazing yeah. right and yeah. that was at the red um, red pill Buddha fat big fat yeah. challenge you know Phil Escott Ben Hunt yeah. And I was at this Warren Health Conference and Sarah Pugh was talking about quantum biology mm-hmm. and how we need electrons. We need these to charge us. We need this energy. Yeah. This is how grounding works. Well, it makes you feel more positive, doesn't it? We, all these words are in our language. You know, we, we, we're either drained or we're fully charged. You know, we've been using these words without really understanding what they actually meant. Mm. But now... Quantum biology is, it is a real thing, it, but it's been absent in allopathy. I'm sure we'll get into this in more detail, but the, the, the rest of the scientific world has moved on to, into quantum. So, you know, just as Jack Cruz and Sarah talk about, you know, chemistry, physics, maths are all quantum. Mm. Biology, medicine, healthcare has never become quantum. We're stuck in the Newtonian age. We're stuck in the dark ages in, in modern medicine. It's, you know, the actually opposite, you know, like lots of things, it's an oxymoron. It's the, it's the 180 degree inversion that we're living through at the minute. It really is. Do you know what? I'm really glad you came today. <laughs> so am I, mate. <laughs> Do you know why? Honestly, um, you know, I've, I've been a bit under the weather this mm. week again. Um, it was like my little boy had a fever, then I got the fever, now my wife's got it. She's upstairs in the bedroom. Anyway, <clears throat> I've bounced back. I took a really high doses of vitamin C mm-hmm. and vitamin D and zinc. And I was it was I think it was like literally one and a half days when I was poorly. Yeah. Anyway, um but yeah, I'm like I was thinking like again, I have these thoughts like, what have I done? Am I crazy? What, what does my average orthopedic colleague think of me? He's given away, hard-won career, lucrative job, you know, good money to do what? Become a podcaster? 
you're you're living your true life, aren't you? You you feel it all the time. You can hear it in your voice. You can see it in your face. You're not living a lie anymore. And that's how I feel exactly. You know, I was living a lie, and when you <clears throat> excuse me, when you turn away from that, you know it's the right thing. Because this is you feel it. You can't stop going in that direction. If you try, you'll become ill. So you will have these cleanses. You know, probably what you've gone through in the last few days, or what your family are going through, is you're throwing off some things you don't need anymore. Mm. I don't. I don't believe you've caught some pathogenic illness that that is contagious. You know, but you're cleansing yourselves. You know, it's, this is well known in the non-allopathic medical system. You know, the body occasionally throws off toxins, throws off things that are no longer needed. So I, I've I've heard of this. I've heard of this, and uh, I get this because the idea that we we get toxins is not woo woo. It's genuine, real stuff. You know, and you, there's toxins everywhere. Mm-hmm. Toxins, heavy metals, toxins, chemicals, plastics. I, mean, I don't know what it is. Forty thousand chemicals now we're exposed to. There's At least there's toxins in the form of radiation. I think people don't talk about that. I need to get someone on my podcast to talk about EMFs, radiation yeah. and EMFs and whatnot because it's not it's not all conspiracy theory. I mean, this is genuinely we you know if we could see it, we would realize how much we're being bombarded with it. Yeah. It's just because it's invisible. It's the invisible know, spectrum. It's that invisible yeah. spectrum. Invisible rainbow. Invisible rainbow. Arthur Furstenberg. So if you can't see it, you think, ah, it's not there. But it's there. It's everywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, I'm still not 100% there in the sense that there's no contagion. Mm. And, and because like my little boy had it and I slept with him and he coughed into my face all night long. And then the next day I've got what he's got. Yeah. And I slept with my wife, and, you know, and I was right next to her breathing on her. And then she's got it. So I like, yeah. I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite ready to let go. And I think we should remain open and be sceptical. But I think the, the explanation I've settled on for now anyway, and I'm completely open to this being wrong and, and learning something newer, but the, the idea that there are pathogenic um, bacteria or viruses out there to get us and kill us, I don't subscribe to anymore. I did. I, I believed what I was taught. And I believed we had you know, antifungals, antibacterials, antivirals. I've used them. I've, I've, you know, prescribed not prescribed them, but dispensed them. But I, I now believe a much better description of what we see and, and feel and observe as humans is that we are passing on uh, information between ourselves about how to detox and when to detox. So we we observe cleanses passing between families, between friends, and quite often these cleanses happen when we let our guard down. So when we go on holiday. So we're stressed out at work, week in, week out, month in, month out. And then how often does it happen that people go on holiday and they arrive and they feel awful? All the time. All the time. And All I, the fracking time. Absolutely. And I believe a much better explanation is that your, your brain has sensed that the time is now opportune to have a cleanse, to throw off something you don't need. So you've been stressed for months, for weeks, you know, uh, maybe years. And the brain has sensed an easing in the stresses, such that there is energy in the body to cleanse and to heal things that have been repressed and put away in the corners of your body for, for a day when it's safe to cleanse. So mm. your brain is simply going, today's the day. And then your family sense the same thing. Your friends sense the same thing. And some of that may be passed between people. I'm completely open to that, that we communicate 
maybe hormonally, maybe through exosomes, which might be the alternative description of what viruses are. Um, are, are, are the bacteria, the gut biome? Absolutely. I mean, the thing is like... These are all us at the end of the day. It's our uh, own biome. I mean, the thing is, there's like how many times more bacteria in our body than human I think, cells? I think, I think we are, percentage-wise, we're like 1% human, aren't we? You know, <laughs> something like that. It's actually mental. Yeah, yeah. We're like this like massive ball of bacteria and we're just carrying them around. <laughs> yeah. We are a symbiotic organism. You know, we are the terrain, aren't we? We can, you know, terrain and germ theory. But yeah, so yeah. the thing is like, I think even like you start sharing the biome like with your pets and stuff like mm. that and so like my wife and i my son you know we've all got we've got the same biome and yeah. these bacteria are also messengers like they they transmit information Correct. and they but then they create hormones and they do this and they do that so yeah. i mean we don't know how information is spread we, but then also we're magnetic beings of course yeah so how does that affect thing how surely that must be having some kind of effect on transmission of knowledge or information from one body to another yeah. well if you study the eastern cultures and i'm only just getting into this but if you you know the traditions in the eastern cultures you know either um chinese or, or the vedic indian cultures you know they, they talk about five bodies so five levels of so our physical body that we can actually see and touch is our innermost level there are four levels beyond that and you know the, the this is where our possibly you know, where our mind is. So the idea that, that our mind is in our brain and in our head, and that's it, according to these ancient traditions, is not correct. And our minds actually extend way beyond our physical body. So the idea that we can feel each other's thoughts and we can communicate telepathically across distances has a, a basis in tradition. But it's been hidden from us. It's been, you know, we're not really supposed to believe this. It's not scientific, is it? Because you can't measure it. Just because you can't measure something, you know, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So I believe I'm, I'm an empath. I believe I can feel things. You know, for many years, I thought I could think things and I could just deduce things mentally, you know, and I could make simplicity out of complexity. I now think that like many people, probably like all of us, mm. we have the ability to sense each other from a distance. I mean, it's been shown, um, there's um, uh, a wonderful guy at uh, Cambridge, I think, it's, uh, I think it might be Oxford, called uh, Rupert Sheldrake. I listened to some of his podcasts, and he, for many years, has done experiments on uh, children and, and adults, and it's been proven that people know when they're being watched from behind. So you, somebody can be staring at the back of your head, mm. you're aware of it. Mm. How can you be aware of it if you can't see it? Um, so these things are real. They are demonstrably true. And I know that I've, I've, been, I've been in that situation so many times. I know someone's looking yeah. at me and I turn around and I can... Yeah. And you catch them looking at you. I mean, how many yeah. times this probably happens to guys more than girls, but you know, cause, cause women have got better peripheral vision, haven't they? But how many times have you been staring at a woman and she, and she turns and catches you? Mate, never. <laughs> I mean, believe you. Mate, I'm happily married. Of course. So am I. I'm talking about much younger times. Look. But don't touch. Exactly. I'm touch, but don't taste. Completely. Taste, you. but don't swallow. Right. Do you know where that comes from? Please tell me. Devil's Advocate, the movie. Right. <laughs> the Devil's yeah, Telling right. Keanu Reeves. Yeah. I, I could definitely subscribe to that. But I'm talk of course, I'm talking about much earlier time before I was happily married uh -huh. in the last 30 years. I'm happy. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. <laughs>
So what are the different other body like the four different oh. body? You can't just like throw that out no, there and then like and then stop like what? No, well, did I'm, you I'm, did you read into what the I, other thing? Well, I've I've read a bit of it and I've got I'm one of these people who buys books and then I've got a big book shelf waiting to be read. So I'm I'm, here, I'm the same. Yeah. So I've. I get so interested in something and I'll buy three or four books and then I'll read a little bit and then I'll get interested in something else. And I've, when I'm next um, on holiday, uh, well, I, I'm, I suppose I'm not on holiday now, but uh, I need to catch up. So one of the things that I've only scratched the surface on is these five levels, but they are, uh, I've, I've participated in, in group, group educational sessions about this, trying to listen to or learn pe- from people who are much more knowledgeable than myself. So I don't profess to be in any way an expert here but, well, I, listen, but i'm aware that for thousands of years the, the the teachings of our ancestors will say that there are electromagnetic layers that that extend beyond the physical body that are actually us so our soul like our soul is contained i believe in the upper two and a half layers so uh, and all of these like it's like russian dolls so they're mm. not they're not separate. They're, they're, the physical body is inside the other four. Mm. Um, so at our very essence, yes, we are a soul living in a physical body. Exactly. That's what I always say. Mm. Uh, an eternal soul in a temporary physical body. Yes. Do you know what the funny thing is? I need to thank you for not bringing a book. <laughs> because I'm, I'm leaving I'm, you with another book. Yeah. Because I'm, I've got this great book: "Choose Life: The Tools, Tricks, and Hacks of Long-Term Family Travelers, World Schoolers, and Digital Nomads" by Daniel Prince. Daniel Prince was on my podcast. He's a great guy. Love him. Yeah. Um, but like, oh man, I've got so many books so, now to read. So when I come back another time, <laughs> if you'll have me, I, I may well have a book that I've written. So I'm, I am partway through writing my own book. But that's for another time. Well, well done for getting started. I mean, I, I've been planning and writing a book since a year ago a doc malik simple guide to good health i haven't even typed one single word yet i've like been writing in my head yeah. and i recently had robert malone on my podcast yeah. i was like how the hell did you manage to get a book out in january 2020 <laughs> on the covid pandemic yes. typeset font printed published edited the whole shabam he's obviously got a big team around him hasn't he i mean i i I heard him say that. I was very envious. I've been, I've been a year and a half now, and I'm probably a third the way finished. We need to get his team on board like yeah. that. I mean, we need, we need him and his wife writing our book. <laughs> We're missing out. Yeah, We're missing out. I don't know what the heck. Anyway, so yeah, I, I do need to catch up on my book. But the thing is, like, I just don't know when. I don't know when, because I'm like either too busy doing the podcast, researching the podcast, Searching out guests, editing, publishing, writing Substack, and then Sports still, actual. still trying to spend time with my family. Exactly. That's just, important. Yeah. We've got to be human doings. Yeah. So tell me, you started this journey before me. I've turned my back on <laughs> being, you know, an uh, a doctor and a surgeon. You know, I feel like, you know, maybe I didn't have a choice, but, you know, I um, I wasn't comfortable with it because it was forced upon me. Mm. You know, I it, I was put in a position where I couldn't practice anymore. Yeah. And now I'm just, I'm embracing that and thinking, okay, you know what? In adversity lies opportunity and maybe this is my purpose. Maybe this is my calling. Mm-hmm. But you went through something similar, but you you weren't forced. 
into that, were you? Or well, I was tell me, talk me through it. Yeah, okay. So, so my my story, if you haven't come across it before, I trained as a pharmacist in the late eighties. Uh, essentially, had a thirty-two year career as a pharmacist. I'm as of first of January, twenty twenty-four. I'm no longer registered as a pharmacist. Oh, congratulations! So, thank you. So did, you, did you ask to be removed? No, I didn't. Unlike medicine and the GMC, the pharmaceutical society don't seem very keen to prosecute. You know. Um, errant pharmacists so right. I, I didn't have to ask to be removed like some of your guests have talked about before so, so how- I, I just stopped paying i just said like i'm i don't want to be renewed anymore so i'm, I'm off the register oh that's it it's as simple, as, it, simple as that simple as that yeah. guess what it's like for me do you know what it's like for me you have to apply to be allowed to leave yes yeah, yeah. so i i have applied i've done something called the voluntary erasure dude you know on the gmc portal Nowhere does it say <clears throat> where you can leave. And it says frequently asked questions. You can ask for advice and everything. And then it says, yeah, you need to complete this form. But there's no link. There's no I click. Mean, click this form. They don't make it easy, form. do they? To leave the club. They don't make it easy. Uh, so maybe, I can't... maybe it's a prison. And you, yeah. And you're not here voluntarily. <laughs> so I'm like looking around the website going, where, where's the fracking form? And then where's the, the exit. Where's the exit? Like, they keep telling you, oh, here, this is how you exit. But they don't actually show you. And so I kept going round and round. And you would click this. It would take you to another information page. And you click this, it would take you back to the page. It felt like it's like a a loop. I was just going for this. It's like the Italian job. You get the minis going round on the roof of the Fiat factory, aren't you? Present, and I was like, "This is so." I just stopped all that, and then I went through every single clickable page mm. on the website, and under um, something I can't remember now, under some obscure thing where it doesn't even say exit or whatever. It's it's like um, applications under applications, and then something else. Then it's like this drop down thing and voluntary erasure form, and you're like, "Really, really?" And then you you read it, and it says. Send this voluntary erasure form to the last hospital or whatever in the last 30 days. I can't remember now, whatever it was, where you've worked. Mm-hmm. And basically, the form you send to the hospital and the bottom half, of, the top half of it is your details that they need to fill in. And the bottom half of it is, tell us whether, essentially, tell us whether this doctor should be investigated by us before we let him go or let her go. Any, any crimes that you want to admit to before you leave this this prison isn't that mental yeah well i i would say yeah probably two three years ago three years ago i would have said yeah that's that's ridiculous but i'm not surprised at all so you want to hear something even more funny so basically i did this form because look look i'm not practicing out of any hospitals right suspended me kicked me out whatever and it's very expensive running a practice Mm. i was losing money for months and months i had to let go of my secretary and I have to stop. I can't practice. I'm, I'm bankrupt. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I'm like, why should I stay in the GMC anymore? Why should I pay my registration fee? Why should I do a pre? <laughs> doesn't make sense anymore. I might as well just quit. And it's like, yeah. So one hospital I gave the form to, they've, they've done it. And I sent it to the GMC and the GMC goes, have you worked anywhere else? And you know, from November to December. And I was like, well, Technically, I was with this other hospital, but I never saw any patient there, never treated anyone, and I terminated the contract on the 5th of December. And then they go, yeah, we want you to do the form there as well anyway. And it's like, they just keep shifting the goalposts, delaying it, it, making it harder. (laughs) And it's like, so it's not even like a divorce where you go, 
Ahmed, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And I go, well, great. I don't want to be married to you, Graham, anymore. And then after a while, we just part ways and go. It's like, no, you say to me, Ahmed, I don't want to get married to you anymore. And I go, well, I'll think about it. And you can't get out. What kind of marriage is that? You've taken the blood oath, haven't you, in a way? You know, you, you, you've joined the creed, you know, you're, you're in the brotherhood. You know, it's a secret society. You know, you can't be allowed to leave and talk about things outside. That would be, that would be too dangerous, wouldn't it? Oh, man, it's just mental. Yeah, so leaving pharmacy world isn't as hard, thankfully. I'm, I'm glad um, to hear that. But I, I mean, I... um. Yeah, I, I'm not sure why I became a pharmacist originally. I, I, I know we, we were talking a bit off air. I, I believe I'm actually an alchemist. Um, you know, I think my true self, my true soul, you know, path, if you like, is as an alchemist rather than a chemist, a pharmacist. But, What's the difference? Um, well, I think, I mean, al- alchemy goes back, obviously, into medieval times and earlier than that. But I think at its heart, it's about transforming energy. Alchemists transform energy, and that's what I believe I'm now doing. I, every day when I'm challenged and I get triggered by the darkness, shall we say, as we all do, I try my best to go, okay, how can we turn this into positive energy? I'm here to transmute energy. That's why I believe I'm, I'm here. Oh, I'm, I'm upset. I got really excited for a second. I thought you were going to convert some of my... Shitty metal into gold, yeah. yeah well, I'm, I'm working on it. I'll, oh. I'll let you know. Well, you're not an alchemist. You're just you <laughs> pretend one, then me. Well, my wife, my wife, who is a pharmacist, a clinic, a very good clinical pharmacist. She's an advanced clinical pharmacist. She always calls me a fake pharmacist <laughs> because I've never really gone down the clinical path. So I qualified in the late '80s, and I joined um, here in the UK. We've got Boots the Chemist. We still have Boots, although they're a bit smaller and they're very different to how they were when I joined. Um, but I went straight down the management path. I was sort of fast-tracked into management um, early on. So whilst I've retained my clinical qualification for 30-odd years, I've never really wanted to be a clinical pharmacist. I've always been a manager and a, a, um, a strategic bureaucrat, if you like, in, in my NHS days, who has a clinical background and understanding. Dude, I thought I liked you. I don't like manager. <laughs> No, I'm, okay, I'm a pharmacist first. I mean, yeah, well, we're too late, mate. Yeah, you're backtracking. You know, I, I've I've got a lot of uh, a, a lot of probably convincing to do on the management. Yeah, because I think are there anything? Is there such a thing as a good manager? I believe they're good in everyone. I, I still I'm very optimistic. I'm very hopeful about everyone until proven otherwise. I believe everybody's got a good soul and has the potential to be good, but a lot of people are taken by dark energies, by the system, you know, by the matrix, however you want to refer to it. And their minds are polluted and they become part of the problem. Mm. So, yeah, I would say in my time, mm. I've not met, in terms of behaviours and, and deliverables that managers that I've worked with, especially the very senior managers, and I've, I've worked at board level for 20 years in the NHS, um, there are a lot of dark people there. And, you know, I would go as far now... With hindsight, I think you can describe it as psychopathic tendencies. Yeah. And I and I, what I now understand much better is that the people who actually rise to that level probably are sociopathic, psychopathic, that type of... Dude, you're you know. describing yourself. Then. I know. I, I, I know I am, but I. what happened to me, Ahmed, was many times in my career I reached a glass ceiling. There was, I, I've probably had about five different careers. Uh, that's because you're not... 
Are you a member of the funny handshake? Oh, no, no. So never. that's your problem. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I think that's part of it. And I, I, my very first um, chairman when I first joined uh, the NHS, I, a primary care trust in the UK, so if you like health authority. So this is 2002. My very first chairman was a very, you know, he was a business, he was local businessman, local wheeler dealer. Um, you know, he's probably in his late seventies and he came to me one day and he would, would you like to come to my club? Mm. And I looked at, I, did, I had no idea what he meant. I didn't know if he was talking about a strip club or a golf club or anything, you know, but I, you know, I'm now absolutely sure what he was talking about was, would you like to come to my lodge? Really? Oh, I'm sure. And I said, uh, no, I don't think so. It, straight away, I said. Not Did you for just me. feel something? I just felt something. a funny feeling down yeah. the back of your spine, going, "Ooh, no!" Yeah, my gut said, uh, "No, not you, for you." You don't want to be drinking baby's blood or something. Well, of course, <laughs> uh, I had no idea at that time. I, I, I thought that the lodge was, you know, like a, maybe a lot of people think of these things as like a, you know, a, a part of society that does its return. It's, it's wealthy businessmen returning favors to the community and helping out. Yeah, disadvantaged people. Oh, it sounds so nice, doesn't it? it? Does, yeah, but I, you know, that isn't the reality as we all know now. But um, so I said no very early on in my career. I managed to progress to board level and and got promoted a few times. Ended up doing a national role. Um, so when Cameron and Clegg and Lansley came, twenty ten, that was awful. It was awful. So they abolished. Uh, they, abolished they started destroying the NHS. They did. So they. So I was, I was a director, board-level director in 2010. I received a, a notice of redundancy. So hold on, what was your title? I was director of commissioning in a primary care trust. So I've been a director. So my role as director of commissioning is essentially to, um, <clears throat> to manage the public purse in a local area, sort of population of quarter of a million, maybe up to half a million people. You, you, you're receiving maybe half a billion pounds of public taxpayer, taxpayers' money. And your job is to uh, receive and understand the national policy directive from the government for the NHS and then make local decisions, local um, prioritization decisions. You, you're changing contracts with hospitals. So I might say to you as an orthopedic surgeon, we're actually doing too many shoulder operations uh, that aren't necessary and we need to do more cardiac operations. So I'm going to shrink the size of the orthopedic um, contract in the hospital because we need to shunt money into cardiac operations. Or I might say to the diabetologist, the endocrinologist, um, we're going to prevent type 2 diabetes. So I'm going to take some money off your clinic and I'll say that to the ophthalmologist and the orthopedic surgeon as well because we're, got, because we're preventing diabetes, we don't need as many foot amputations. We don't need as many eye operations. There won't be as many strokes or heart attacks. So I'm going to take some of that money off you and I'm going to spend it on primary prevention in the community. And I'm going to work with uh, schools. I'm going to work with disadvantaged groups. I'm going to work with gardening clubs and we're going to prevent type 2 diabetes. Yeah. Question I want to ask you is what you just said to me sounds great. Also sounds very contradictory. So what do I mean by that? You just said the government informs us of the national policies and priorities and what they want. Yeah. And your job is to implement locally things that are, you know, important and the, you know, diabetic prevention. They sound separate. They sound completely contradictory. You know, what, what were you actually doing? <laughs> were, you, were you doing what the government wanted and national policies and politics? Mm -hmm. 
or were you doing things that were relevant to the local population? Because they seem very different to me. And the thing is, part of the problem that I saw when I was in the NHS was the political politicalization of the NHS and healthcare. And I think local hospital hospitals should be let free. Let the rain should be off. They should be allowed to do whatever they think is necessary mm-hmm. for their community. And I yeah. I saw a disconnect. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, you're absolutely correct. So. Uh, if in a cash-limited system, and the NHS and healthcare is cash-limited, at the end of the day, there is only a finite amount of money, you will have to make decisions about where that money is spent and allocated. So if you leave it to frontline clinicians, so and particularly secondary care clinicians, to make that decision, it's a bit like, um, you know, if, if you're holding a hammer, everything's a nail. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, if you if you do um, X-ray or you know any type of scan on, I mean, I'm I'm late fifties, you know, I've never been near a scan, but if so, I'm pretty sure if you or one of your colleagues scanned my body, you could find twenty things that you would like to fix in my body, but not that many, but yeah, a few things, quite a few things, but, yeah, 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 yeah. But I I actually don't have any pain, you know, I run and I walk with no pain, so what's the problem? Exactly. So. If you leave it to the front line, it doesn't matter what discipline it is, they will always see lots of nails. And the nails add up to more money than the budget. So ultimately, somebody somewhere has to do what's called prioritization and allocation of resources. And that's what I did. And the government talk a good talk. So when when policy documents come out every year, there's a an NHS mandate or a new policy document comes from the health minister. And it will say lovely things like we're going to address mental health and we're going to reverse diabetes and we're going to... It's always lovely. We're going to stroke children and, well, maybe that's the wrong phrase. We're going to actually look after children's health uh, in a way that means they don't become ill. So the, these words are in there, but actually behind it, what they want to do... What do you mean they stroke children? Um, I, I, what I... You know, inappropriate phrase, but what I mean is they actually um, look after the health and wellness of young people so they don't become ill. So we we don't tend to spend any money on children after they've been vaccinated and through school. Um, The funding per person that's spent is predominantly um, on older people and very young people and pregnant women. Yeah. There's very little money spent on young adults trying to keep them well and healthy. No, you're right. So, uh, and it may, I think we would all understand that it, you, you could invest a little bit in a lot of people to slow down their, you know, their aging and their, their progression of their diseases. And that's, that's what these documents talk about. But actually underneath what I now recognize looking back is that the policy direction is let's have bigger hospitals, more hospitals, more drugs, more healthcare because that's the economy, that's the business, and healthcare is a business. It's about it's about growing the business of sickness. It definitely is growing the business of sickness. Do you not think it's also a gravy train? Absolutely. So I found the NHS to be really corrupt, and money exchanges between those who have the contracts and those who can dish out the contracts. Mm. And they want to justify their budgets. And if they want to keep their budget or grow their budget, they need to spend it. Even if they don't need to spend it, Correct. they will spend it on crap, inefficiently, or on contracts or goods or services. 
just so they can justify next year's budget. Yeah, because you don't want to show that you can make a saving because then your budget for next year will be cut. And uh, I mean, the, the easiest budget to change is the prescribing budget, the, the primary care GP prescribing budget. So I, I was a direct commissioning and I was a head of medicines management. Those are some of the roles that I had. So I was actually, if you like, the biggest drug dealer in town. You know, I had a hundred million pound drug budget um, that I was accountable for. I could write policies and change the formula in my area to change the way that that budget was spent. And it's actually quite easy to save millions of pounds in a year. And I've, I've done it. I've done it repeatedly in different areas. And what never happened was, you know, that, that money never came back to me to spend differently on drugs. It always disappeared and went into the hospital to spend on operations or something else. Um, so I, I very rarely managed to secure the savings to spend on prevention in the community. It usually went to pay off debts in the hospital or pay for the latest diktat from the government, which was about the latest operation or the latest um, procedure in hospital. But like so much money actually does go to paying off debt. The PFI fiasco, I mean, I don't know what percentage of a hospital's budget now goes to pay off the debt. I'm sure it's massive, at least 20% or 25%. I mean, it must be a massive amount of money. It's a big drain, isn't it? It's a huge drain. And then there's also just just rank corruption, I think. It's just so much uh, waste. I mean, I, I mean, we, we started talking about Lansley you know, in the NHS here in, the, in 2010 and Clegg and Cameron. So mm. that's when my days as a board-level director came to an end. And I was, I was given three and a half years' notice of redundancy. Three and a half years. What do you mean three and a half years? I was told in early 2010, I mean, yeah. it was three years, three months. So the beginning of 2010, when Cameron and Clegg came in, all, all board-level directors in primary care trusts were served a redundancy notice that on the 31st of March 2013, you will be redundant. Your role is not. So, I mean, I think this is unheard of. People in the pro- private sector would say, what are you talking about? So I was told I, I my role... You'd be out of a job in three years? Yes. That's a long time. It's a very long time. So it's like the, it's like the sword of Damocles hanging over your neck. Yeah, what's so, that all about? Yeah. Because that, that would even drain your will to work or do a good yeah. job. or what, I mean, like it's the most ridiculous thing ever. Yep. So a lot of people in my level saw it just, if you like, just lasted out those last three years. A lot of them took early retirement. Some of them just put their feet up and didn't do much. I, I got moved into um, national roles and I was working nationally on the behind the scenes i was a like a policy advisor on the 2012 health and social care act mm. going through parliament and uh, until that time i i i wouldn't say i believed in politics but i thought i understood what politics actually was and the, mm. the politicians were there to serve the people and it's all right i've been a muggins too <laughs> i know it's all right it's okay buddy it's okay yeah, i know it's but, right. and it didn't take long for me to realize that Yes, Prime Minister was actually a documentary. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I had to get out of there. I had to get out of their national roles and I, I went back to local roles. And that was my first sort of semi-awakening that, oh, um, I don't think the world is quite as I thought it was, but I thought it was just politics. And um, I did get made redundant at the, uh, in March 2013. My, my services were no longer required. Why was that? Well, I bumped up against the glass ceiling, I think. I'd, I, what I realise now, looking back, is that there was a club and I wasn't in it. Mm. I well, was, well, welcome. Welcome yeah. to my club. 
Badge of honour. <laughs> Dude, welcome to my club. My club is the club of those who are not members of clubs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I see that as, once again, the universe intervened to save me. I, I believe that now. It was very painful at the time, and you know, to be told you're not needed and nobody knows what you do anyway. Did I've come up with a name from my club? Frack U Club. Frack U Club, yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Are you a member of the Frack U Club? I think so. Good. Yeah. <laughs> um, just as long as, well, we, we'll never need to leave, will we? But we don't need rules to stop you leaving because nobody wants to leave. Dude, the best thing about my fracking club is that there is no rules. No rules. There's no rules. There's no registry. Yeah. There's no top dog. There's no nothing. And you know what? Even better, there's no membership fees. I'm That's in. it. How cool is that, right? Yeah, we're both in. And you can come in and out whenever you like, whatever. Sounds great. <laughs> so um, so I, I was very redundant. I spent three years working as a, um, a consultant in the pharmaceutical industry. So, to- Well, hold on one second. So, <laughs> what the frack? What the frack? So you... First of all, become a goddamn manager, like yeah. the most detestable yeah. class. No, I'm just joking. Yeah, like, yeah, to fine. all the nice managers yeah. listening to the podcast, you're different. And, you know, if you listen to my podcast, you must be a nice person. But <clears throat> anyway, from becoming yeah. a manager, you then go and work for Big Pharma. Yeah. Dude, mean, you lost the plot. I did, seriously. But I, <laughs> I once again, I think, I, I look back on all these different aspects of my my life really my career and i believe i was being shown things and prepared for what is now unveiling itself and what will come next and i'm sure we can come on to that so i i i now see these as blessings so i i went and worked for the pharmaceutical industry as a gun for hire if you like because you know whatever you may believe about the pharmaceutical industry they are rubbish at selling their drugs so, really yeah they they, you know, and I, I don't wish to be critical of the people working in there who work very hard in the marketing teams and the medical teams. But the reason they are rubbish at selling those drugs is because the NHS is like a foreign language. If you're not in it, I mean, it took me probably took me three years to understand how the NHS worked when I joined. So if you're in a drug company and you've made a wonderful, let's just say you've got you actually do have a really good product that's pretty safe and it does what it's, it says it does. And it's actually, you know, will help people. It will save lives and it will reduce the burden of disease. So you've produced a new drug. Is, it, is there such a thing? Um, <laughs> they're probably few in number. Okay. <laughs> Very few in number. Maybe but that let's, would, let's just maybe let's, that's one of the reasons why they're hard, they're yeah, crap at selling things. Probably. But even if, let's just let's just be kind for, for a minute and okay, say you okay, actually okay. managed to do that. I don't like being kind, but okay, fine. Yeah. Well, so... The ability of your teams to talk to the NHS decision makers in such a way that they say, yes, we will admit your drug. I mean, I'm talking pre-2020 now because I think things have changed significantly. But, you know, back in, you know, the 90s um, or the noughties after that, um, if you'd got a a worthy product, and the same would be true of uh, a medical device, you know, an implantable, you know, a new, new hip, whatever. The same is true there. It's the same process you have to go through. You have to, before you can get the clinician to use your products, be it a device or a drug, you have to get the, the yes men, the bureaucrats, the managers, to admit that product onto the, um, the, the formulary, if you like, so that Doc Malik can actually order it. Because if it's not on the order list, you can't have it. Yeah. 
So the first job is for the marketing team to understand what their uh, unique selling proposition is to the NHS. And to do that, you need to understand how the money flows. You need to understand what the targets are. You need to understand what the diktats from government are. And you need to understand the language. And you need to know who. And all of those things are cloaked in mystery to most people outside the NHS. But I'd spent 15 years in there. I knew all those things. So I, I was an ideal person to sort of sit in the middle between the pharmaceutical industry and the NHS and be the translator piece. You know, and the funny thing you should say about this whole translator piece business and language, do you know what I really fracking hated? Mm-hmm. I was clinical director and I got to speak to lots of managers. Some of them were quite nice. It's the fracking management speak. Oh, absolutely. It's bullshit. Yeah. It's about making yourself look clever mm-hmm. and when you're not. It's like making yourself look like you're busy doing stuff when you're not, I'm an advocate of pl- speak plain English. You know, yeah. don't speak gobbledygook to me. Yeah. Don't give me this jargon. I completely agree. I mean, fracking and, drives me nuts, mate. Yeah. And it, it's a career ladder, you know, and to get to the top, <clears throat> you need to speak the language. You need to be the right type of person. Yeah. And you need to do the things that, that the government wants you to do. And if you stand out in any way, you're not going to get promoted. So, I, you know what? And whenever anyone started speaking those metrics and this and that, I can't, even, I can't even speak that fracking mm. language. It's so stupid. I just wanted to say bullshit. <laughs> to your face. Patience, yeah. Just speak plain fracking English to me. Well, we called it feeding the beast. So the, I mean, there'll be many people in the NHS bureaucracy or the, the healthcare bureaucracy around the world that probably resonate with this, you know, we, we called much of our job feeding the beast and the beast being the people above us who needed um, data or needed a report or needed to know that targets were being hit. It might have been a, 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 an MP's question. So the, the minister in the, in the UK parliament would be asked a question uh, and he would have to give a written answer. So we'd all, the whole NHS would get sent a spreadsheet saying, count this thing, count this, how many of these were done in the last two weeks? It's like, an, like a huge FOI request, freedom of information request. So there'd, there'd be thousands of people all across the NHS, both in uh, health authorities and in hospitals, that would be counting something, all because a minister had been asked a question, you know, a, a sort of five-line question. And everything stopped because that was the deadline that had to be hit. You know, that would happen every, mm. week, every week. So we called it feeding the beast. So there were, there were lots of cycles. There was the, the annual planning cycle, monthly reporting cycles. But, it, you know, the, the clock's always ticking and the beast is watching and you have to feed the beast. And if you don't... 100%. Yeah. You know, I don't even subscribe to 100%. There's some nefarious agenda and it's all designed evil behind it i mean some of it might be but i think a lot of it is the beast is the system the bureaucracy the self-feeding system which just you know is all about creating work to justify more work more jobs and more jobs and the salaries and their titles and and the appearance that good is being done for the people the appearance that look look how busy we are guys we're busy we're we're digging a hole we're digging a hole we're filling the hole we're digging it we're filling it we're digging and it's like we didn't need a hole (laughs) we didn't need a hole we didn't need a hole but why don't we do some screening to find more holes 
Right, let's do some screening. Let's do some screening. And let's commission some research on how to find more holes. Right. And whether what's the most effective way of creating those holes? Yeah, well, yes, if we create holes in advance, you know, we can actually learn to fill them even better. So we need a team to actually make holes in the first place. (laughs) Do you see what I mean? Yeah, but it sounds, sounds ridiculous, but it's quite close to reality. This is what happens. It was mental. And the number of people that I saw coming in with these, you know, you know, McKinsey's and PwC's yeah. and whatever, getting paid 500, a thousand pounds a day, At consultancy least. and implementing change. Or oh, first of all, thinking, what can we change? How can we change it? How fast should we change it? When should we change it? Let's change it. We've changed it now. Yeah. Oh shit, it doesn't work. Let's change it back. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell but you. what's the best way to change it back? And then, oh, yeah. let's get another consultancy firm in to yeah. decide. And before you know it, you spent a million pounds, yeah. and you've gone, you've gone ten oh, steps forward least. and twelve back. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. <laughs> when I first joined in two thousand and two, I can't remember the name of the government report, but the you know the National Audit mm-hmm. Office or something like that produced a, a government report. And it looked into change management in the NHS. And the bottom line of this document, this is 2002, the bottom line was the NHS is extremely good at learning the lessons that need to be learned in order to change for the better, but useless at implementing them. And that hasn't changed to this day. So what is it, like you say, it's, it's a revolving gravy train of management consultancy firms. There's the big four who come in all the time and every time there's a problem, ah, oh, we'll get one of the big four in, and that means we can kick the can down the road for at least a year, possibly three. So we need a new hospital in um, Aylesbury. Uh, yeah, the, the the MPs feeling the heat. You know, the public are you know baying for blood. You know, it's it's crumbling. It's made of flaky concrete, all that sort of stuff. Let's bring in the consultants. That'll keep everybody away from our door for five years, possibly ten, if we can stretch it out, and we won't need to spend any money. <laughs> but everybody knows we're doing good work, you know, and that's that's what happens. Can you also tell me and um, expand upon the budgets because there's a there's an investment budget they can feed into, and then there's a kind of running daily budget. And yeah. what I found was whenever I did a business case, I wanted to get an additional nurse in my clinic yeah. who could do some screening tests, who could uh, a, a nurse that could do wounds, take stitches, at, and that would then free up me my time yep. to see new patients and i and i did a business case saying showing that if i saw a new patient i would generate more revenue mm-hmm. than me checking on a wound so having a, a nurse or physio that i could train up to do you know a clinic would actually pay for itself and more um, and i would make money from it yeah but i would want an initial ex- an investment you know of that nurse or yeah. physio from payment and i need a, i need an upfront payment but yeah. within a year it will be paying for itself yeah. and more. Yeah. But what I found was th- the money for that was impossible. Yeah. But the money to pay for, you know, problems was always there. Yeah. So, and even if that meant like a hospital was losing money, I'll give an example. Actually, I've got a fantastic example. So um, there's a, a system, you know, where you want to remove implants from people, like if they've had screws and plates mm-hmm. put in. And what people don't realize is all these screws and plates come in different shapes and sizes. There's a hex driver, a star driver, you know, lots of different things. Sometimes a screw head can get stripped, so you need yeah. a, s- a special extraction device, all that kind of stuff. Um, to buy that equipment would cost them like £20,000, right, up front. Yeah. 
Yeah. And to do the business case, they'd be like, oh my God, 20,000 pounds. Where are we going to get 20,000 pounds from? Oh, you need to do the business case. Oh, we're not sure about the business case. You need to come to the meeting. You need to present it. You need to pitch it. You need to do all this. I did it. Oh, we don't have the money for it. It's a great idea. One day we might have it, but no, not right now. Yeah. I went, okay, well, I need to loan in the equipment and that's 5,000 pounds. And I'm loaning it in six times a year. That's yeah. 30,000 pounds. If you just gave me this set now, mm-hmm. we'd save 10,000 in the year. But they wouldn't do that. No, they would rather just loan it in. What the frack is that all frack? about? Okay, so what, what you quite rightly are, are pointing out is the lack of joined up thinking. Right. And the lack of joined up finance. What so is going on there? They talked going... about two different budgets. And yeah. What the frack? So you've got, you've got capital budgets and revenue budgets. So you've got, so capital is one-off spending. Yeah. So it might also be called non-recurrent money. And then you've got revenue budgets, so that's recurrent money. Mm. So it's probably if we use the example of a household budget. So you know you're you're an orthopedic surgeon. You're getting let's say X. You're getting paid. Let's say you're salaried, and you're actually you know you're getting a regular income. So that's your revenue budget. That's your recurrent money. But every three months you get a profit. You get a bonus. You know, or you might attend a conference and win a prize or something. So oh, you, that'd be nice. So you get some, every now and again, you get some non-recurrent money that comes in. Now, if you were to go, if you were to say to your bank manager, uh, well, actually, I'm earning twice my salary. Can I have a bigger mortgage? Your bank manager would say, well, what's your salary? I'm not interested in these bonuses and things like that because that's, we can't rely on that. I know you get them most of the time, but they may stop. And so that's what's going on is... The, the finance departments have got uh, money that they are sure they're going to get next year and money that they're not sure they're going to get next year. And what the government does is it keeps the whole system teetering on the brink of collapse by making the recurrent money scarce. And it keeps putting in non-recurrent money. Injections. Yeah. Here's, here's a grant for a year. So, Mr. Chief Executive in your hospital, here's... 10, 20, 30% of your money, but it may not be here next year. So don't go spend it, you know, rashly. You know, that Dr. Malik, um, you know, just be careful because he, he, he's got, you know, he's got big designs on some expensive equipment. So that's the, the purveying culture, if you like, in finance teams is, is extreme caution. And accountants are like this. But that, no, but that caution doesn't make sense because... I showed them several ways where we could save money mm. over the course of a year with a little yeah. injection up front yeah. of money, but they chose a system, a path yeah. that would lose them money. So I think you're into a, a and, different related issue. And, which then, is, and then that to me was like, if they take money away from that, that means their budget would go down and they would not want that. They would be like, yeah. oh no, we'd rather just keep it. Another thing as well is I think, the business cases and everything took up time and they would rather just put it onto this rolling yeah. so tracking. So I think there's a few things going on. One, one is the ability to make decisions. So I think um, pr- private sector will understand this very clearly. A business that makes decisions will be successful. It doesn't matter if you make the wrong decisions occasionally because you'll learn from them. But if you don't make decisions, if you're incapable of making decisions, your business will fail. And the NHS and most healthcare bureaucracies are extremely bad at making decisions because of the, the just number of people involved. So I think there's something about too that many, as well. too many layers, too many layers, too, too many, many committees, bloody layers. Exactly. And then I think you've got the perennial management versus clinical. 
you know, hang on, there's this very intelligent doctor coming into our space in our meeting trying to tell us what to do. Uh, well, we are having it because we're in charge. We are the management. So we have to uphold the strength of our, you know, our, our discipline against those pesky doctors because if the doctors take control of the hospital, we're gone. You know, and there's there's a bit of self protectionism in there, and it and it works both ways. So, oh god, it does. Yeah. It definitely works both ways. I had this guy, this orthopedic consultant, come in and see me, and you know, within the first year of me being appointed, and he goes, "Oh, listen, Ahmed, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? Why are you working so hard? Cutting down your waiting list? Yeah, you know, why are you doing that? You hardworking doctor, you. Hard, what's what's your problem? Yeah. Parallel list. What I used to do was well, this is sounds ridiculous, but. Yeah. I realized that the downtime was crazy. Mm. Even though I was mopping between the cases, the op notes were typed up, everything, the time it would take to send for a patient and have the patient anesthetized and back in the theater was an hour. Mm. So I thought, you know what? I can operate on one patient, leave it to the junior doctor to close and bandage up. I will walk into the next door theater Mm -hmm. and start the operation there. Yeah. By the time I finish, they'll have the next patient back ready for me to start. And, and, and so what I started doing was parallel this. Yeah. So instead of doing four or five operations in a day, I was doing like 10. Mm. I go from one to nine. Guess what? My waiting list was like. Boop, 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 so your NHS waiting list drops and the ability for you and your colleagues to earn private waiting list money. So when, when the down. NHS is, <laughs> when the waiting list goes up, what the NHS managers have to do is come to you on the bended knee and say, can you, know, you can take back. some of this work? Can you do some of this on a Sunday? Yeah. Can, can you go to that nice shiny, you know, PFI hospital down the road on a Sunday? 100%. And we'll pay you double. Yeah. We'll pay you double your NHS rate if you can, because the beast is on our back. The, the, the minister is saying the waiting list of your hospital is five months longer than it should be. So we've got to get it down in two weeks. 100%. Yeah. So that's it. So, so then, what's your price, Ahmed? How much, how much, and, and then you've got them. Yeah. So your senior colleague knows this, but yeah. there you are undermining his income. <laughs> so he, yeah. So he comes to me and goes, you're doing this all wrong. You build up a waiting list and you hold it as leverage over the managers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then you take some of it to the private sector yeah. and everyone's a winner. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, I know. Well, I, I, I mean, I was exactly the same. I was just this young, yeah. bright-eyed, happy, work hard, yeah. fix the system, help people. Yeah. That's all I wanted to do. Exactly. And here I am, a senior consultant, telling me off yeah. for, for doing what I thought was the right thing. Yeah, and probably around, <laughs> around the same time, so when I, three months into my NHS career in 2002, I was taken aside by one of the, the senior um, executives like, Graham, what are you doing? What, what do you mean, what am I doing? Well, you, you're doing loads of amazing work. You're doing all these projects and you're saving money and, and you're showing us all up. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, so this is in the, you so say, what you're, what you're got in the clinical sphere, yeah. I've got the same in the management sphere. It's like, dude, will you slow down? Because, you know, just don't work so hard. Don't be so effective because you're making it look like we're not working. Well, maybe they weren't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, dude, what the frack? And, and it's it's so sad. I mean, we're laughing, but it you know people think the healthcare system is there for the people, 
And it, but, but people have to understand, I think the system's there primarily for itself. Yeah. And that's in the broadest sense. It's, it's the drug companies, it's the careers, um, you know, it, it's the, you know, all the services that, that, that look after a building. You know, a hospital building is a very expensive place to build and run. There's contracts galore going out of, you know, from the finance office. You know, that's, that's the system. It's paying all of those. The problem is we're in an era where there's too many net consumers and not enough producers. Mm. So what I mean by that is like um, there's too many people working in a system where they are dependent on tax revenue. And not people working who are tax generators. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Most people now, I think, in the economy are funded through the state system, mm. state enterprise, state. Yeah. And where does the state get the money from? The people's tax. Yeah. Whose tax? The private yes. industry, the private uh, entrepreneurs, the individuals who are working. Mm. And so the actual people who produce and make, they are funding the lifestyles and the, the jobs mm. of those who don't. Yeah. And we need to stop that. And yeah. why? This is all state, the big state government yeah. gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the problem is at what point is it going to get to where, you know what, this parasite is actually bigger than its host. Yeah. Well, it's centralization, <laughs> isn't it? It's centralized healthcare. <laughs> Um, as we've come to realize now, I, I have, and I think many people have, it's not an efficient way of, of delivering public health. You know, individual or population level wellness does not come from centralized medicine. Yeah. Um, it absolutely doesn't. It, and, but we've got, you know, I, I know many of you guests talked about things like Stockholm Syndrome, you know, and the, the, the difficulty is that most people have been brought up to revere doctors, to, to worship healthcare, to trust drugs to rely on all of these things for their own day-to-day um comfort if not wellness you know it's like well i don't want to address the hard things in my life so this pill this operation Mm. this this consultation will get me through today and that's enough and i think it we all need to have a if you like reach our personal breaking point i know i did in uh, you know, because working in this system made me ill. I, I lost my my health, my intestinal health, mainly in this about 2015-16. And that's when I had my second awakening, um, probably third actually, was the food industry. And I realized everything I was doing, I was following all the, you know, the, the healthy eating plate, doing what the guy oh, said. We're, we're going to come to that in a second. I was getting it so wrong. And okay. I realized all oh, that's back to front as well. Dude, we're going to come to that in a second. I think we all need that individually to happen to us in order to be willing to consider that what we're being told might not be correct yeah 100 percent. but i think you also need to i don't know have some you do need some awakening i was thinking about this the other day you know i i i was i thought i was awake to a lot of things geopolitics mm. yeah since 9 11 soon after that and then health around about four or five years ago and NHS corruption. Yeah, definitely four or five years. But, you know, it's been slowly building up to the point where I can't stay in this anymore. They, they don't want me. And if you don't want me, well, frankly, I don't belong anymore. But it's taken a while. Does that mean that the 25 years I was in the system, I was a bad person? I was deliberately, you know, 
a willing participant in this evil system? No, of course not. You know, yeah. I was a good person. I just didn't know any better. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people who are in the system who are like that, who are of still course. like that. Good of people course, yeah. who are working, trying their best, mm. but don't actually know. Don't know. I think there's a minority who do know mm. it's bad and are happy to play the game yeah. and profit. They're just the really bad ones. Mm. Then there's another minority of people who know it's bad and feel helpless. And they're the ones that get burnt out yeah. and, you know, stressed out. And they, they just know it's all wrong and they don't know what to do about it. So I think it's a mixed bag of people. Absolutely. And I think yeah. I, I say that a lot. Um, in, I, I do quite a bit of public speaking. And one of the first things I will say is I'm not necessarily being critical of the people in the system, but I am definitely being critical of the system. 100%. You know, I was thinking about something, you know, imagine like going back to that parasitical relationship of the system imagine you've got a horse and there's a tick right the tick's tiny you need a magnifying glass to look at it. and that's why the horse doesn't even know it's there and it's perfectly healthy and it can live now imagine that tick is on the back of this horse and it's the size of a pig <laughs> right just imagine this ugly blood engorged tick the size of a pig that horse it's going to be weighed down. The horse isn't going to be galloping anywhere. The horse isn't going to be making babies anywhere. That horse is struggling to just get through life. Yeah. And the problem is the system, the government is like that now. If we are a human being, we've got a tick the size of a child on our back. It's weighing us down. Now, some people don't know. They just know life is tough. Mm. They just think, God, my shoulders are heavy and I'm stooped over and why is life so hard? Some people know they've got a goddamn tick behind their back and they can't fracking get rid of it and it's killing them, stressing That's, them out. Yeah. And some people don't want to admit they've got a tick because it would be embarrassing. Yeah, they don't want to look in the mirror. And other people believe that the tick is actually part of them. Yeah. It's uh, what everybody I mean, has. They're messed it's up. just normal. And they're really fracking messed up. Yeah. Right. This is the problem that we're in. Government, centralization, centralized healthcare is that tick. And un unless we all shake this off, this tick, someone needs to make a meme of this. <laughs> we can't be free. And the problem is, you know, when I say to people, oh, you know what? This is the problem. It's not just that. The, f the solution is so wonderful. Imagine you didn't have this tick on you. Imagine you were free. Imagine you were unshackled, unburdened. You're able to do whatever you like, go wherever you like, not have to pay income tax. No, we don't need to pay income tax. Don't need a goddamn passport. We don't need planning permission. We don't need government to tell us this is legitimate and we can do this. We can We just do whatever we like. How cool would that be? Yeah. But it's also extremely scary for people who can't envisage that world. The people who've, for, for generations, their families have <clears> relied <throat> on the state, relied on the doctor relied on the packet of pills the tick the tick you know so you you rely on the tick for for your own identity it is part of you so to not have the tick is goddamn scary isn't it and what will life without the tick be like i don't know who what are people going to think of me when i go out without my tick <laughs> they get they're going to laugh at me aren't they yeah it really is like that yeah, people is. have just got to the point and that's why i think the tick's my best friend anyway <laughs> <laughs> my running companion. Yeah.
But this is the thing, like, the thing is, like, we've got so mollycoddled into thinking this horrible entity, I don't want to call it Dick anyway, making me <laughs> chuckle too much, but this horrible entity, this beast that is feeding on us, is our friend. This is how ludicrous it is. People genuinely, and the welfare system's done a great job of that. You know, oh, you know, it's there to protect us and look after us. No, it's not. It's there to grind you down, to get rid of any soul in you and innovation and, you know, creativity and hard work and basically all your labors most of them are just taken away from you to feed this well, beast. Well, the tax burden is like, is it 88% in the UK now in your lifetime? Something like, you know, approaching 90% of everything that you create and earn will be taken away by the state. Mate, your, it's really lifetime. funny. Not even on the back of a, of, a, of a tissue paper or anything. Just literally in my head, I was just doing some rough guesstimate calculations and I've run it past quite a few clever people. And I've said, I think it's between 90 and 95%. And they've all said 100% right. Dude, just think about that. Yeah. You earn a pound, and in your lifetime, you get to keep five pence. Yeah. Look at you. You should be grateful. <laughs> you live in this wonderful, state-controlled, comfortable reality. And I, what I would say to people is, just imagine you could keep the whole pound. The whole pound. Would that not be a better future? But, but then you've got to make scary decisions, haven't you? you've then got to decide what to do every day. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, unfortunately aren't ready for that. They, they've been taught that they don't have the intelligence to make those decisions. So somebody needs to do it for you. And that's the sad reality of, you know, modern living for a lot of people. I think they're just going about their day being told what to do. I think it's also our schooling system. Absolutely. TV, yeah. programming, yeah, adverts, adverts, the yeah. whole, whole shabam. Yeah. Anyway, listen, I came across um, something with, you know, we're going to talk about your journey in a second. Mm. But like um, the Pharmaceutical Journal is a, a year long investigation by Deb Cohen and Margaret McCartney raising questions over the influence of the UK government and NHS England on yes. nice approval of cholesterol lowering, lowering drugs. Yes. Um, and, 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 what, and Margaret has written, if you're interested in the way politicians try and influence the decisions, that NICE takes about what drugs to approve mm. um, and what general practice does and how evidence is regarded, please do read this. And I really liked your comment. The UK government removed the effective regulation of pharmaceutical safety and effectiveness so that ministers can direct independent, quotes, NHS England, NICE and MHRA to follow corporate and commercial interests rather than act in the interest of patients. The UK population is the clinical trial. Now, dude, that doesn't sound to me mm. that the big pharma is crap at selling its, its wares. Sounds to me big pharma's got round their problem of how to sell things by going directly to the government politicians Absolutely right. and getting them to... <clears throat> basically sell their drugs for us. Yeah, absolutely for, right. For them, sorry. So I was... When, when Stop I, saying yes to everything I say. You have to disagree wrong. with me. You're wrong. It's worse than that. <laughs> okay, there you go. But yeah, the, the, that investigation, what that's shown is that the era of marketing teams needing to know who to talk to in the NHS, that was yesterday's news. Because We've been seeing this. Yeah, because those people don't exist anymore. Those reps, those, those really cute, sexy reps, yeah. they're gone. They're gone. 
Um, well, the ones that went to speak to clinicians went a long time ago. I know, I know. The ones that were speaking to the bureaucrats like me, um, they've gone now, but they were, because the, the latest changes in the bureaucracy, that, that they're, they're ever culling the layers. So the, the 2012 Health and Social Care Act here in the UK, it removed the, um, the, the, uh, the need for the Secretary of State to be responsible for the direct provision of healthcare. So prior to 2013, if a patient didn't get treated well in a hospital, the Secretary of State um, had to answer for it in Parliament. So that was removed in 2013. That's massive. That's massive. Yeah. Dude, that's ma- what does that actually okay. mean? So the way it was sold, Ahmed, at the time was, um, we're going to take the tentacles of government off the NHS. So this was when bureaucrats like me, this is my three years notice of redundancy. I'm gone. Yeah. And Ahmed is now in charge of the hospital because he's a good clinician. He's a good frontline mm-hmm. doc. He knows how to make good decisions. Graham, the, the rubbish manager, is gone. So the Secretary of State's also going to get out of the way. Yeah. So the Secretary of State's not going to tell Ahmed what to do. It's up to Ahmed now. So for 2013 through to 2022, I think we've had that clinically-led era. So we've had GPs in primary care and consultants in secondary care upstaging the managers in, in you know, overtly, at least in terms of government policy. That's what everybody was thinking the system was. But quietly in the background... Mm. The, the opposite has happened. I mean, it's the 180-degree inversion. Mm. Ahmed, the minister's no longer on your back, but actually the minister's now talking direct to the drug company. The minister's set up um, the back door to NICE and to the MHRA. And by the way, we've just Brexited as well, so we don't need to bother with that pesky European Medicines Regulatory Agency anymore. We've got our own UK one, which is all focused on life sciences and promoting the economy. So we're going to, we're going to attract research into the UK. We're going to make the, the, the UK population the biggest clinical trial in the world, make it easy for new drugs to be launched in the UK. That's what's gone on. And that's what that report shows, is that far from NICE being an independent, you know, arm's length government body, they're actually being told what to do. And we had the same, we've got the same with the, like the body that makes the decisions about vaccines. The, there's the supposed JCVI. JCVI. So, dude, that's so conflicted. I, I don't understand. Like, if you've got an organisation that's going to be judging and, and you know assessing whether to approve a vaccine or not, why would you have people on there who are in that vaccine industry making and producing research? Nobody else is smart enough to understand what those products are. So, do you, do you know what I say to that? I say to that bullshit. Absolutely, hundred percent. But on those committees, you've got people from the very industry that they're uh, making decisions about. You've got the fox guarding the coop house, the chicken house. Of course. And it goes beyond that, Ahmed. So in 2021, when the government was here in the UK, was rolling out the the jab um, to, you know, in this 100-year event that we've just had, um, when they were rolling it out, the committee, the JCBI, was asked to make a recommendations on extending it to younger and younger populations and into children. So the committee discussed whether to um, roll it out to school children. And yeah. the committee said no. Yeah, I know, I saw that. And then they changed the membership of the committee. Is that what they did? They did. They, they, the government reached into the JCBI and lent on a few of the board members or the committee members. And I think there was uh, a couple that wouldn't bend. So they, they were exited. And some of the ones that would bend did bend. And then the vote, they'd had another vote 
a month or so later, and it got through. You are fracking kidding me. Oh, go back and look at it. So who was it, who were the ones that left? I, I can't remember the names. It's 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 well, it's obviously you know knocking on three years ago now. But um, I distinctly remember at the time the the committee voted no, and then ministers you could you could see the ministers getting involved behind the scenes. The language you know was you know was very um, unhappy language, shall we say? Uh, ministers are not happy here. Um, have another go, feed the beast. So the committee was agitated. Some people left. Um, supposedly they they chose to leave. Of course. Like like I chose to yeah, leave. I chose to leave. Yeah. <laughs> so and that's how things work. It's when when you don't get the decision you want, you have another go, don't you? With a bit more pressure or some incentives, perhaps. You know, because the, the, there's a there's a merry-go-round of jobs here, isn't there? You know, these people they pop up, they leave, but they pop up somewhere else. Do you know what? I wish I could be prime minister for one day. I'm telling you right now, in one day, I would clear out the fracking swamp. Mm. I kid you not. And if the Americans wanted me to come over for a day as a president out there, I'd clear their fracking swamp. I, I swear to God, you know, this whole idea that you need a whole term, I would, I would, no, I would, I would do it very quickly. I would lock up a lot of people in prison for a very long time. Absolutely. And I think part of the problem also, and you alluded to this earlier on, is the bureaucracy and the civil service. This is a bullshit. Our politicians are ser- serving the civil servants. Of course. The civil servants are serving themselves the stage. and the corporations. Yeah. So, so our ha- mm-hmm. here in the UK, our, ha- our House of Commons is a PLC. It's a corporation, just like drug companies. Uh, the NHS is a PLC. Social care is a PLC. I believe even the royal family is a PLC. So PLCs, corporations, have a fiduciary duty to make profit for their shareholders. And guess what, folks? We ain't the shareholders of any of these institutions. So you might think you've elected a representative into parliament, but their job is to make profits for their shareholders. And that ain't us. Who's a shareholder of the House of Commons PLC? I wish I knew. This is where, you know... Are you serious? Yeah. House of Commons is a PLC? If you go into Company's House and uh, have a look, the last time I searched, they, they they come up. The Conservative Party, obviously, is a PLC. The Labour Party. Wow. Is it still there? I don't know. I can't find it. <laughs> can't find it. Parliament House Limited. Yeah, there you go. Is that it? I think the House of Lords and the House of Commons are separate PLCs. No, it's not. It's not. And, um, you know, they, they may, may well be, you know, hidden... You know, in I don't understand how these things work, but like shell companies and things like that, you know, the sort of layers of corporations. So you can't actually see, you know, who owns what and who the directors are. It's just too much, man. Yeah. This is too much. This is just going down too many fracking rabbit. That's it. So I've I've come to that conclusion myself because you you can go very deep and very dark. And it's, you know, I went through my own stages like like you have. I got angry, first of all. And then I got very scared because I thought, wow, this is so big. They've got us. It's checkmate. They've got us. But I, I don't feel that anymore. I feel like they've overreached. I feel like that because we are talking about these realities, because we can see them, and mm. many people are now, mm. what this shows is that they've revealed their hand, that their, their plan of control is actually not 
working in the way they originally envisaged it to work. And this is a plan, you know, that's been going on for centuries, if not millennia. And in their final attempts to control us all, they're making mistakes and they're making them repeatedly and they're making them very visibly and they're having to invent uh, coping mechanisms which have become visible to us. And, you know, this is my system guy waking up. This is what allowed me to wake up was like, hang on, this, this doesn't add up. I, I, I can't see what you're telling me. It doesn't exist. Something else exists. So, so I'm not hold, the only one. So hold on. So let's go back then to your mm. little wee journey. Mm. So you you started working for Big Pharma. I spent three years. So I, I was a, a private consultant. So I worked for a small consultancy firm and I was like hired out on a daily basis to drug companies. So I, I would go out there, we'd have an exploratory meeting, you know, we'd identify a company that might be struggling with a new drug. We'd go and have a meeting with them. Oh, we can help you, you know, we can transform your your prospects. And we won contracts to provide services, you know, be it training or, you know, creating marketing material, that sort of thing. Or just advising the board members sometimes. And I guess there must be some I mean, I, that's a problem as well. You don't want to just label all of them bad. I mean, there must be some pharmaceutical companies doing some good work, small ones, you know, yeah. making antibiotics, yeah. you know, whatever, you know, doing some good work. Um, yeah. But they I, weren't all bad. No, but I, um, I, I talk a lot now about the baby in the bathwater. Mm. You know, the, so the allopathic system is a baby in a bath. Um, I think the thing I've come to realize is it's actually quite a small baby. And the bath water is very big, very deep, and it's 100%. very polluted. Yes. And what I'm putting my energies into now, Ahmed, is, is identifying the baby. Mm. And that includes the good clinicians in the system mm. who want to cooperate and start to do something different as an alternative. And maybe the alternative is actually the original. We're just going back to this, back to the future. I mean, the thing is, like, like part of that small baby is, for example, trauma. You know, if you're in a car accident, you've shattered yeah, your femur and you're causing it, it's an unstable fracture, and it means you're lying in bed for six months mm. while it heals and your muscles waste away and you get pneumonia and pressure sores. You know, having a rod put down that femur is yeah. a great operation. Absolutely. You know, and there's, there's quite a lot of trauma like that. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of urgent yeah. care. So I think if we just describe it very broadly as urgent care, that would include emergency care and trauma care, and it might, you know, and it would also include mental, mental health services as well. So, the the, the sort of short term acute, you know, what clinicians t call acute care, um, urgent trauma, emergency care. A lot of that is absolutely necessary. I think within that, there's good and bad. There's things that are evidence based and really helpful, and there's things that probably aren't evidence based and shouldn't be done. So I think if we say broadly, the urgent care system should be valued and we should keep quite a lot of it. Um, but the chronic care system, when it, when, when it comes to long-term care of what's called chronic diseases like diabetes or mental health conditions, cardiovascular diseases, <coughs> um, inflammatory you know, conditions like rheumatoid. Autoimmune. Autoimmune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we, could, we should all be able to see, hopefully now, that the modern healthcare system is doing a crap job at trying to deal but, with that. Mate, it's burden. also about incentivization. So what do I yeah. mean by that? So when I, I don't know if you can validate what I'm saying, but you know, when I was clinical director, it's very clear that the hospitals were making money from the chronic diseases. So they were making money by treating hip replacements and knee replacements. Yeah. They were not making money 
in the A and E department, yeah. the ER department. Absolutely, acute services were loss making, mm-hmm. no money. They didn't give a damn about them. Mm-hmm. Money was made by the elective services, elective surgery, yeah. blah blah blah, and follow ups. And so, yeah, so you've you know you would be incentivized or maybe even required to keep bringing your patients back. No, no, months. no, no. We're descent. It was opposite. We had to keep eventually. Our, yeah, we had to keep our new to follow up ratio low, and then we're told not to see our patients anymore. Yeah, that that came after. So prior, so probably my time as a commissioner slightly predates your time as a consultant. But initially, you had complete freedom to bring people back. We could do whatever we like, and then it was like, no, you can't. No, you can't. But and and but the thing is, I was not given. I was like, I did my own waiting list, um, and I was the only consultant who was doing that. So what 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 do I mean by that? I had a spreadsheet in my clinic. I would see a patient. And, you know, some patients were in more need than others. Mm. Some patients had mm. more priority than others. Some people had no family, had no ind- yeah. were totally independent, and they were now losing their independence. They were a priority. Then there were some people who were like, oh, yeah, I need this fixed, but doc, do you know what? I can manage. You know, I've got a wedding. I don't want to do anything until after the wedding. Yeah. So I would bump them and say, well, when do you want this operation? And they'd be like, yeah, after the summer in six months' time. Whereas the person who... Couldn't wait. I'd be like, oh, did the one month. But what they wanted me to do was see the patient and give everyone a six-month appointment. Of course, because the beast is watching them. Yeah. See, the beast is watching. And as soon as somebody trips over, say, uh, six months or 18 weeks for a first appointment, um, a little red flag appears 100%. on the hospital. So the manager <clears throat> comes down to your, um, your secretary and said, um, what can you do about removing that red flag? And, oh, well, Dr. Malik says, well, that person doesn't want it now because they've got a wedding coming up. And the manager says, well, bring them in now. Or take them off the wedding. Or take them off, yeah. So, that, so that's one of the ruses is yeah. the patient has decided not to remain on the list. So they go back to the, they go back to the start. Yeah. That removes them from the list. The beast is happy, but the patient's not happy because they've now got to wait again. You're not happy because you've been overruled, but the system's happy. Yeah, that is exactly what happened. Yeah. So, so I thought, and, and the other thing as well is because I was doing the waiting list planned months in advance yeah. when the patient wanted it. Like, seriously, people would be like, I've got my daughter's wedding I want to go to. I've got a holiday plan. I've got a cruise. And you know what? Some people would be like, well, they didn't, clearly didn't need the operation that much. Listen, some of these people have saved up a lot of money. And this is a big thing that they've booked and planned. And they don't know when their appointment's going to come through to see me. They don't know. They're not going to hold on, like freeze their life just waiting for me and when the appointment will come through. They, they're getting on with life. So they've booked these big things in their life. Bar mitzvahs, you name it, whatever. So when I booked a date with my patient, that was then fixed. They'd be like, right, I'm not going to book anything after that, Mr. Malik. I will be available. I will be free. So then guess what? When I, when I would, and then I would, I would populate my list. I would be like, right, I can do these two cases and then another two cases. I've got the right mix of equipment. I've got this and that. So my list efficiencies were really high. My yeah. cancellation rates were really low. Yeah. But what what the managers said were that we were not happy doing this. You're missing the targets. You're missing the targets yeah. because you've now got people who are waiting 18 weeks and then yeah. 16 weeks and oh, you know, and what the funny thing is once they breached one target, they went, oh, you don't need to operate on that person anymore because now it's going to be another six months before they breach mm. another target. No rush. So there's no rush now. No rush, yeah. And I was like, hold on one second. Last week, you wanted me to <laughs> rush to operate yeah. on this person. Yeah. But now you're that like, now you're like, push them out five months. It doesn't matter now. Yeah, exactly. 
And it's all about targets. And I was like, I was going fracking mental. I was like, you're not fracking doing this. I'm just going to operate on my patients, please. So I would have this constant archy-bargy. And they're like, you're the only consultant in the department who's doing this. Everyone listening isn't clearly not surprised that Ahmed Malik yeah. is the only one not doing this. Because <laughs> this is Ahmed Malik for you. But um, uh, eventually they took it off me because they said, if you don't stop, and this is, I'm talking about like seven, eight years it mm. took to get to this point. But they're like, if you don't let go, there's going to be a formal investigation. And I was like, oh, fuck We'll so, find something on you. Right. But I'll tell you what happened, because you'll love this. Um, A year or two before I gave it up, they had, I think it's called Atom, um, something about theater utilization and optimization or something. Mm-hmm. And so they had this consultancy firm come in mm-hmm. to see how they could um, get everyone else, get get optimized efficiency. Oh, and who, in front who, of... The, who came out top? Yeah, yeah. In front of the whole department, yeah. the guy goes, can I, can I have Mr. Malik put his hand up, please? And I put my hand up. Mr. Malik are you a robot? And I was like, no, why? Because your theater utilization and your last minute cancellation is, you know, you don't have any, like, how do you, what are you doing that everyone else is, I was like, I run my own list. <gasps> the intake, the, everybody's like, no, no, no. Like, and I'm like, yeah, I, I do my own booking and clinic and I do my own list. And, um, and, and, uh, and yeah, just schedule everything myself. I don't use the scheduler. Silence. And, and did, did your learnings, were they taken up by the consultancy firm and, and given to the board as the way forward? <laughs> you, Sorry to ask. You must be fracking joking. Yeah. So what happened was they took my, they took my scheduling away, they took my little spreadsheet away, yeah. and they started, the manager started doing my list. But guess what? Do you know how they did it? You're not going to believe this. They'd ring up the patients and go, hello. Um, so we'd like to offer you a date for your surgery. Can you come in next week, please? And the patient would be like, oh, um, I'm really glad you've offered me a date, but I, I, I can't come in next week. I, I, I haven't planned anything. I, I need to get care. I've got pets. Uh, my daughter's wedding's next week. You know, like, can't I, can't I come in three weeks time or four weeks time? No, you have to come next week or we're taking you off the list. But I can't come next week. Okay, fine. You're off the list. Yeah, goodbye. Goodbye. That was what's what And then what was happening was I would turn up. I would turn up to my list. And they'd be like, oh, Mr. Mike, there's been two cancellations. So you're, you, you know, we got nothing in the afternoon. I'd be like, hold on. What, what the frack? Why? Oh, well, you know, the patients couldn't come in. Blah, blah, blah. They said yes a week ago, but they changed their mind today. They, they've changed their mind. Yeah. They were forced. They're coerced yeah. into just taking the list. Then they went away and thought about it, tried to get the help tried to get something, you know, accommodations, whatever. No one was there to help them. They've cancelled the last minute. So my theatre utilisation went down the road. Guess what? After six months, I got a manager coming up to see me and going, Mr. Malik, we've been looking at your theatre utilisation. You were running a really good theatre optimization, but something's happened in the last six months and your utilisation is really bad right now. You know, I'm like, what, like as bad as everyone else? Yeah, like... What, what, you know, uh, do you need any help with anything? Is, is there a problem? I'm like, no, it's not me. You took my scheduling away. You took my list they away. Didn't know. And they didn't know. 
the new manager. Is I'm it, not surprised. So is this it, is the new green, you know, wet behind the ears, new manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hasn't yet worked out how things really yeah. operate. Yeah. And they've just come to me because they think I'm doing something wrong or I'm, something's wrong with me. And I'm like, no, you, no. you should go talk to your colleagues. Yeah. Do you see how oh, mental so the system it is. is? It is. And... I mean, I, I could tell you, I mean, I've seen firsthand, you know, in hospitals where I've worked, you know, I've been the commissioner for the hospital. I've seen good consultants like yourself who are surrounded in their department by consultants who are gaming, you know, and, and extending their own private list. Totally. And these good consultants stand up, and this is in lots of different specialties in different hospitals. The good ones stand up and they get absolutely crucified. Totally. And... They've even gone, I've seen consultants who've gone to the CQC and raised, and they've whistleblown, and they get further crucified. Oh, wow. Yeah. And their, their, their case is shut down. It's hidden. And the managers, that, that the, you know, the, the senior board-level people who've overseen the, you know, the shutting downs of whistleblowers are promoted. <laughs> I've seen it. Of course they are. What the f- yeah. Ah. ah yeah. Ah. I mean, I've 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 been I I was once I was trying to change the one of the pathways in one of the areas where I worked and I was it, I eventually did do it and do you know what we in in a very large specialty uh, respiratory we halved the number of non-elective admissions in from a 12 month standing start we halved it. Wow. Prior to prior to that program being authorized, it took me three years to get it authorized in that area. But prior to it being authorized, I was hauled in by my bosses, mm. who'd been asked by the hospital chief exec to shut Graham up. Oh wow! That this this chap wants to take money off my hospital. Can you make him stop? Basically, and I said, no, I'm not going to stop because I'm you know. I'm doing the right thing for patients, which is stopping them progressing to serious acute disease. And we're going to do that by preventing, you know, we're going to upskill community services, physios and doctors and nurses in the community. And we're going to use the money that we saved from the hospital. And it took three years. We got it done. We implemented it. The senior clinicians in respiratory backed us and worked with it, including the hospital consultants. They backed doing the right thing because what we also managed to do was to get them new work out in the community teaching the doctors. Mm. And we got them new work uh, doing specialist work. So the hospital was able to, rather than sending people you know, 50 miles away to the, to the specialist respiratory hospital, they were able to offer that service in their local hospital. So what we found was a win-win-win. We protected the consultants. We, we got them, in fact, doing more interesting work. And the patients won. The money was saved. Happy days. But it took me three years. And that's... And that was after probably 15 years of learning how not to do it and being being frustrated and told no. And that's how hard it is to change things in the interest of patients and do the right thing. 100%. Dude, can I ask you a question? Mm. Really, really, really important question. Listen, do you need to go for a wee-wee? No, I've, I've got a really large bladder. Do you need to go for a wee-wee? I need to go for a wee-wee. <laughs> can we pause so I can go for a wee-wee? Of course. All right. <laughs> um, you see, so you've got a big, baggy bladder. I have. They're so all comfortable now. I'm oh, so much happier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad, right? Right. So you worked for this private company, Big Farmers. Yeah. Bidding. Then you left. 
So I left and I, because um, I was commuting, I, I live in the north of England and I was commuting on the train down to London. I was, you know, the, the circuit, all the, all the drug companies around the M25, basically. So I was living away from home. I'm now in my early 50s and it's getting tough, you know, just to keep doing it physically. So I got the opportunity to move back into the NHS, you know, just something I didn't think I would do. But I didn't want to go and be a, a high street chemist, pharmacist, you know, filling prescriptions. I, I got the opportunity to go back into the NHS, but in, in not in a board role, not in a senior manager role, but in a middle manager role. And I was basically the head of medicines management in, in, a, in a clinical commissioning group, a CCG. So I, I was, if you like, the local drug dealer. Um, so I was responsible for the GP budget and also as a commissioner of the hospital drug budget. Mm. So in total, it was about £100 million. So I did that for about three years. You know, I was, you know, it was okay. This was a this was a time that I actually managed to change the respiratory pathway as well. So not only was I looking after the drug budget, I mean they hired me on a sort of three day week contract, and within a month they said, "Dude, can you work a bit more? Because we need a commissioner." Um, so I was doing a bit of commissioning on the side as well. Uh, tried to change the diabetes pathway, but didn't work. You know, nobody wants to change the diabetes pathway. To this day, that hasn't changed. <clears throat> so. Um, that lasted three years, and then I, I was approached by one of the uh, doctors in the area, one of the GPs, to come and run their practice. So I, I went and joined Frontline GP practice, became a partner in that practice. Uh, so I was invested in it. I was a co-owner along with the GPs. Mm. Um, that was all going quite well. I was enjoying it. We were making a difference. And then 2020 arrived, mm. and uh, it all started getting very difficult indeed. Um, I don't know if you want me to... Go for so it. I could go for it. So, so I, in my time as a senior uh, board level mm. director in the NHS, I was trained as what's called a gold commander. So this is where, you know, when the 100-year pandemic arrives, you're one of the people that gets sent to the bunker that's running the country or running the, your region. So I Gold was commander. Gold commander. Big, lots of epaulets on the shoulder, big oh, stripes. Wow. Yeah. So you take it in turns, essentially. When there's a national emergency... And it, it may be a terrorist incident, it may be a, a, a huge flood and storm, you know, but when, when the services go down in an area or at risk for whatever reason, you know, Gold Command is set up, it may be a major traffic incident on, you know, and there's all hospitals are overwhelmed. You, we need every orthopedic surgeon going because there's 200 broken legs coming in, you know, that kind of thing. So Gold Command is set up and I'd be one of those people in the bunker along with the police and the military and who knows else from the government. Um, so February, 2020, I'm on holiday. Uh, I'm having a nice time in the North of Scotland in the snow up a mountain. And I turn on the telly and there's Lombardy and Turin and New York on the telly. And, uh, then I, it was, then it hit me that I realized this was coming to my door and I would go back to work on Monday and I would have to manage my practice and my population of 25,000 patients through the one in 100 year pandemic. My program kicked in. I was properly scared. I, I, I believed it. I went to work. I briefed everybody, made a few people cry and got ready to... <laughs> seriously, I, I was properly hooked. Um, and I worked out based on the Lombardy and New York data, along with some colleagues, we worked out that for our 25,000 patients, we'd probably lose 500 in the first wave. And we might lose three or four doctors in the first wave as well. And I might die. Yeah, it was that serious. So 
early March, I believe that's what was happening. I was watching Boris and Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance. So you didn't you didn't come across the Princess Diamond? Yeah, I knew about I knew about the Diamond Princess. I'd seen that, and it, <clears throat> it got a lot of publicity. Then it kind of went very quiet, didn't it? You and didn't see the data from that? And I think- saw it. Yeah, so literally by the middle of March, by the first week of lockdown, the Diamond Princess data and my own local practice data or my own hospital data was shouting to me, this isn't right. Something doesn't add up here, Graham. So we'd had outbreaks in our care homes. We'd had supposed COVID breakout in several of our care homes. We'd put in place what's called the just-in-case drugs, which is the morphine and midazolam and other drugs when people are about to die. To whoa, 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 whoa. Stop, stop, stop. So these just-in-case... So yeah. when did this all come into play? So the national- Like, were you given guidelines? Yeah. And so when did this these guidelines come along? So this was all early March. So lots of things changed nationally in early March. So the the... Uh, death certification rules were changed. The cremation rules were changed. The guidelines. So nice. I can't remember the guidelines. Is this pre-lockdown? Just before lockdown. So just before lockdown. Talk me through everything that changed. Okay. So I think the key things that changed were, so the nice guideline, I think is it 163? That number might not be right, but it's changed subsequently. They've they've, um, repeated or they've removed that original guidelines. This is the guideline for people who have COVID um, to help them die more comfortably a the, good death a good death like how so this is this is morphine midazolam and and other sedatives so dude you're a pharmacist so what, yeah. what does that stuff do to you well it um it obviously it uh re- it reduces your breathing it, it uh renders you unconscious first of all um and then there's drugs to reduce your anxiety before that so there's there's five drugs that are used uh, that are commonly called the just in case drugs so for years these have been used for cancer patients or maybe somebody with copd respiratory disease they're just you know they're struggling to breathe so they get very distressed just before they die so there's um drugs to help them feel less anxious about not being able to breathe so drugs to reduce their pain and ultimately um drugs to relax them and midazolam as we know, you know, takes away your consciousness. All right, so hold on. So if you are in a nursing home and you've got a bit of dementia or you've got a cold or a bit of a flu and you give these medications, what's it going to do to you? It's going to progress you rapidly towards your final days because it's expected. So this is, so you've got to remember the context at the time was that this is a, well, the, the, the national narrative, maybe not the context, the national narrative was this is a new, novel disease we don't have any drugs to treat it and we now know all this is is false but what was being told to clinicians at the time was this is a new novel disease we don't have any drugs that work the only um the only right um care that you can administer for these patients is to ease their passing because this this is the time when people were being put on ventilators and were expiring rapidly around the world you know we were all seeing it on our tv so what actually happened um in my area was that several um residents in care homes were diagnosed this is pre-pcr testing they were diagnosed um on the um the only evidence was the care home manager rang up and said you know mary mary smith's got a cough and she's looking 
not not a normal self. So the doctor on the phone, because remember, we're all working remotely now. So the doctor on the phone says, probably COVID. Uh, right, send the just-in-case drugs in. What the fucking hell? Yeah. We killed people. We did. Um, so I watched while this happened, and I expected, as I said, 500 people in the first wave to die. But what actually happened was nobody died. There was no difference in, in our rates of death. In fact, we had outbreak after outbreak in our care homes, and we expected it to spread like wildfire and there to be lots of coffins coming out. But the reason why it didn't. didn't was because basically there was no novel virus. And this is where I disagree with Robert Malone. You know, he was on my podcast saying it yeah. was novel. And I'm like, really? No. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Nothing well. novel about it. Why did no. most people get it and recover if it was so novel? Yeah. And then the other thing is, that's why I pick on the word pandemic. Like to me, the idea of a pandemic, I don't give a frack what anyone's definition is. My definition of a pandemic is a deadly contagion spreading wildfire across the world, killing and maiming millions of people. That's a pandemic. And if you ask the average person on the street, they'd be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, If you said to someone, is a pandemic what the who decides is a pandemic? They'd be but, like, but it no. never was, was it? So uh, Robert Malone was speaking factually because what he was being very careful to say was the WHO declared a pandemic, therefore there was a pandemic. Well, what I would say to Robert then is, don't talk to me like a fracking lawyer. Yeah, exactly. You're not a fracking yeah. lawyer, are you? Yeah. Talk to me like a mate, fellow doctor, and just say, yeah, it's bullshit. It's not a pandemic. They can call it a pandemic. Well, it was a, wasn't a real fracking pandemic. Don't give me a legal answer. Yeah. Correct. So we know, we can look back at the, uh, the stats. The UK government's stats for 2020 show an unremarkable year in terms of deaths. It's, if you look at the 2020 and the previous 30 years, jumble them all up. I, I defy anybody to pick out 2020. You can't do it because it's the 13th uh, deadliest year out of 30. What a horrendous pandemic yeah. year that was. It was. It was what it was, a was, shitty, pathetic excuse a of a pandemic. It was. So I had the care home outbreaks. Nothing happened. It, it was a nothing burger. I had people in their 70s, 80s, 90s patients being admitted to the respiratory COVID ward in my hospital a week later being discharged perfectly well. And I thought, so by lock, by probably two or three days before the first <laughs> lockdown, I smelt a big rat. Yeah, me too, man. And that's when I knew that we'd been lied to by government. And it, what absolutely cemented it for me was when I saw Matt Hancock in the House of Commons deny there was a link to vitamin D and COVID survival. Mm. And he, he said in the House of Commons that the government had commissioned research into vitamin D effectiveness in uh, COVID, and there was no link. And the next day he had to go back and give a statement to Parliament and correct Hansard because he said, sorry, I misled Parliament. We haven't done any research, and basic, but there is no data. And we all know absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. We all know, clinically, we all know that vitamin D levels in your blood, this is, you know, whether you treat somebody or not, but the vitamin D level in your blood prior to you getting ill is absolutely hugely important for your survival through whatever you're going to get, but particularly for a respiratory illness. Mm. And studies show this subsequently. I think there was a, there was a, a well-shared study, I think it was in Spain, where they, they studied the blood levels of vitamin D for people being admitted to COVID ward. And essentially, if their levels were, I forget the units now, 75. So I think the, the NHS is, is happy with 50. If your level's 50 in your blood, happy days, it's enough. It's not really enough. But 7,500, 150 is better. 
But they said anybody who had a blood level over 80, I think it was 75 actually, over 75, they had an 80% chance of living. If their blood level was below 75, they had an 80% chance of dying. And I knew then that the treatments that would work for whatever COVID was, and but treatments that would were evidence-based, were simple and cheap, were being systematically withheld and repressed mm. from patients. And any clinician who dared speak those words, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, vitamin D, vitamin C, you know, I, yeah, uh, intravenous vitamin C, you know, the Chinese were using it. We knew the Chinese were using it in March, April 2020. I approached my local hospital, you know, maybe we should try this. Absolutely not. Because to, to put that, your head above that parapet as a clinician meant a black blackballing. You were going to be seriously taken out. So, but why? Why? Because if you're going to subsequently um, give the emergency use authorization for, and I hesitate to call it a vaccine, but let's say you have an intervention that you need to uh, bypass the normal regulatory approval, and you need, so it has to go through emergency use authorization. We've never had this before. No, we haven't. we've never had emergency we've, use authorization no, for fracking anything. Because we've always had treatments, and we've never had novel diseases. So we've got a novel disease. It was declared a novel disease. We have nothing that works, according to the government. Bullshit. Bullshit. And so therefore, because those two criteria are met, legally, we can emergency use authorise this jab. Fracking bullshit. And it's still to this day emergency use authorised. They haven't gone back and done, done it, it properly. Done it properly. And there's, that's a whole nother rabbit hole. But why the doctors? I mean, I can, America, they're pushing this EUA. Were we, were we, were we in the same kind of jurisdiction, same territory? Yeah. Like yeah. you say doctors would be blackballed. Why, why here? Who would be blackballing? What what would happen? Well, just as you were um, you were hauled up for managing your own waiting list, you know, if if you started prescribing ivermectin, hydrochloroquine, vitamin D, intravenous vitamin C, you'd find somebody's heavy hand on your shoulder very quickly. Uh, I mean, do you need to stop doing this? Now, hold on one second, mate. Listen, I like you. <laughs> I like you, but Graham, mm -hmm. you're you're making a big mistake right now. Okay, tell me tell me where I'm going wrong because right. I love challenge. You're, you're, you're slightly pissing me off. You're giving me the impression that you're critical of the NHS. <sighs> Sorry. I, I've, 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 I need to go back to church and repent and pray at the altar. Sorry. Of the holy vaccine. Yeah. Pray in front of the holy yeah, vaccine. absolutely. Dude, like, we can't question the NHS. No. The NHS is a religion. Mm. It's a cult. We need to worship it. Yeah. It cannot do any wrong. And the only wrong that's done is that we don't pay enough money. All right. Yeah. But you see, I think this is where, where lies the problem, that people have this idea that just like big government, mm -hmm. big NHS is this big fluffy teddy bear yeah. that we're just meant to cuddle, cuddle, cuddle teddy bear. And it's there to love us and we're, we're meant to protect it. When actually what it's done is any doctor who wants to step out of the line and do the right thing or do things slightly differently because mm -hmm. of what their conscience is telling them, what does the system do to them? Tell me. Deletes, does, deletes them. Deletes them. Yeah. Tell me how that, tell anyone listening to this show, tell me how, defend that system, please. Defend the NHS, which is a structure, a beast that destroys doctors or any clinician who strays out of the path 
that has been dictated. So you you force me into a position that I don't like to take. So, but the the analogy I'd use is the emperor's got no clothes. So your eyes are telling you the emperor's got no clothes. But if you speak it, if you write it down, somebody who doesn't have eyes or has got blinkers on will also know the emperor's got no clothes. And that can't be allowed to happen. We cannot bring the reputation of the fabled cuddly NHS into question. We cannot embarrass the minister. We cannot put the prime minister in a difficult position by showing evidence of something that they're saying isn't true. Mm. So you can't call the narrative into question. Even if, and, and there's lots of famous quotes we can use over the years, but, you know, um, you know, George Orwell, you know, came up with many of them. You know, we can, we can go back to Aldous Huxley and, and you know, the, a lot of these guys have come up with really good quotes, but the, the, it all boils down to the state controls the narrative. And if, and if a lie is spoken a hundred times, it passes into truth. Especially the bigger the lie. The bigger the lie, the more impossible it is to be not true, to, yeah. to be true. And this is what I was faced with, Ahmed. I, I was saying to my GPs, look, the government are saying this in, in our own practice with our own, I could interrogate our own clinical system and I could see by, by sort of June, July 2020, I could see that the people who were dying were cancer patients, mental health patients. People run over by a car. Well, I'm not talking about the COVID. I'm not talking. Yes, there were people who were labelled COVID who had you know nothing wrong with them respiratory wise, but you know they they swabbed the dead body and they said, well, that guy with a bullet hole, uh, he he had a coat. So the reason he didn't dodge the bullet is because of COVID. So yeah. Um, but what I could see absolutely in my practice was that the people who were dying were the vulnerable, frail people with other diseases that were being denied medicine. Mm-hmm. Because we shut the system down. We, we, we said to the NHS, to the public, we need to protect the NHS. You need to stay away from hospitals. And we know now the government's own data shows that hospitals were 60% full. At the beginning of, of the lockdown and into the summer, they were 60% full. The, ventilator, the ventilated beds were not full. All these uh, nightingale hospitals that they set up were hardly ever used. They were all just window dressing and show. So I, I'd, got, I'd got data, I'd got government data that I was showing my GPs. I, I could see that the, there was a spike in deaths and there was a spike in respiratory deaths in March, April 2020. But by the beginning of May, everything was back to normal. Mm. May, June, July, August, September, everything was absolutely normal. In fact, the respiratory deaths were below normal. Mm. For, so here we were in the middle of a respiratory pandemic. The government's talking about going to lockdown two. This is sort of October 2020. And I'm getting really agitated now in my practice. I'm saying, guys, you know, docs, if we go into lockdown two, if we, if we follow this diktat, we're going to kill people. We're going we're gonna to harm our patients. Oh, we're not shit. protecting anybody. And I called it the, the pursuit of zero COVID because <clears throat> that was the mentality. It was... We have to have no COVID deaths. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but, and I was saying, but Doc, if you, if you do everything possible to make sure we have no COVID deaths, I'm going to have a hundred other deaths. Yeah, right. It doesn't matter. This is feed the beast time again. You know, we need to have no COVID deaths. Yeah, but what about those hundred? No, it doesn't matter. I, you know, the cognitive dissonance was just off the charts. So, and in the end, uh, I was asked to be quiet. 
in my own practice. I was I, all I was doing was replaying the government's own data to my staff and to my fellow clinicians. And in private, one to one, a lot of the well, some of them would agree with me and say, "Graham, we know you're right." In a group, they would argue against me, and nobody would defend me in a group. Um, so. I, I was isolated. I was, this is, you know, you've had this experience as well. You know, it's, you become the problem. Yeah. You shoot the messenger, don't you? Yeah. And the messenger starts to think that they're going mad. So I, I generally thought, well, I'm, I'm obviously going mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you have all those self-doubts and you, you question everything deep. Every day. Yeah. Every day. And then you, you realize, well, however it comes to you, you realize you're not mad. But the... 2020 progressed and we got to the end of 2020 and the the jabs appeared on the horizon and like many people um i mean initially we had all gp practices were given the option of having a running a vaccine center so we had a vote i voted no a majority of my partners voted no based on a number of factors some of which were safety and e efficacy and just general disruption to us to be honest um and then some partners forced a revote and the second vote was yes. So I did, was. Did money have anything to do with it? That was part of it. Yeah. There How was, much money were they um, looking at making in that year? So per jab, per jab, it was £6.28. I thought um, it was more than that. I thought it was like £10, £15. It was, well, remember, it's two doses. So I think it worked out £12.56 per patient who walked through the door. If it was a, um, a home visit patient, you got an extra £10. If it was a care home patient, you got an extra £30. Wow, that, that was at the beginning, in twenty early twenty one. That was the payment for GP practice. So, what were they forecasting the practice to make? Um, jabbing, we're into five figures, like roughly. We're over a hundred thousand pounds of income for the practice. But and what would that be? What what did that actually mean as a practice? Like that kind of money? Is that like this, nothing? Or is that no, like a huge thing? I mean, in a business that's, I mean, it's probably more than that for the whole year. But it's a significant, you're looking at a sort of 5 to 10% increase in income just from the jab. Um, there's a lot of cost to it. So that's not all profit by any means. There's a lot of cost because this is paying clinicians in evenings and weekends to come and work. You know, there's a lot of management time needs to go into it. But there is a significant profit in there as well. Yeah, but I know people who are in the jabbing centers who've told me they did like a couple of hundred jabs in a day. Yeah. So easily in terms of money, that's that sounds like easy it's, money. Yeah, like I'm sure it's like three, four hundred in a day. They were talking about like yeah. literally they were walking in. Yeah, mate, that's what happened to me. It was like yeah. there was no informed consent. There was no chat. It was bang. Yeah, in my arm. Yeah, I mean we 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 had a vaccine center. I mean I designed it. I opened it. I was the accountable manager. To this day, I've I. I'll, I'll, I'll say publicly now, I, I wish to apologize for any harm I've done. I have um, any, any people who've incurred harm in any way from my actions as a partner and a manager in a vaccine center. My, my, it wasn't something I wanted to do. I wanted to get out of it, but I found myself in a position I couldn't get out of it. I tried to change it from the inside, and when I realized I couldn't change it, I walked away. Um, and that was two and a half years ago now. Oh, shit. Um, but I knew in December 2020, because I, I participated in lots of national meetings, I was on lots of planning meetings with you know, all the big national people who were briefing us. 
And the reason I voted no, Ahmed, was I knew this was a bench use authorised. I knew it was a product with no clinical trial evidence, and a lot of the animal testing studies had not been done. Um, I knew it was a product where we didn't know what the ingredients were. I knew it was using an experimental platform um, of lipid nanoparticles, and it was um, supposedly going to change people's DNA in order that they express the, the most toxic part of this um, novel virus. Well, what the and, fuck? And as a pharmacist, as a clinician, that the logic of using that as a therapy made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. So I said, we're going to have a, a whole mountain of, of um, autoimmune diseases. If you force somebody's body, their own cells, to make the very toxic thing that we're all scared of, then that person's immune system is going to take out those cells. And we now know this is what's happening, be, be they bone marrow cells, brain cells, ovary, testes, cardiac cells. This is what's happening to people who've had these, these jabs. So I knew that, and this is what I argued when, when, we, when I voted no. And how can you give informed consent to anyone? Well, that, that's, I'm glad you raised that, because in, early 20, in December 2020, initially, UK government, we were being briefed to plan for informed consent. So probably about second week in December 2020, I costed out how much it would cost to run in an informed consent process. So this is when we're all, we've got to distance everybody by two meters. We're all wearing masks. You know, we're all running around scared of each other. We only had a room of a certain size. We worked out we could admit 20 people at a time into a room, sit them down two meters apart, and a GP would spend about 20 minutes briefing them on okay, what is this product? What's in it? What are the risks? What are the side effects? What don't we know? How might it work? You know, what, you know, what can you expect? What to look out for? Informed consent. Uh, there was a four-page document created by a group of doctors in the UK, which was fully referenced, and I had ready on my laptop to print out and give to patients so they would sign it. We worked out how much that process would cost. And we, we worked out that to run that process and do the jabbing, we probably wouldn't make any profit at all from the fee that was being paid. So two weeks later, before Christmas 2020, the government changed their mind and said, we're not doing informed consent. I don't know why that changed, but it definitely changed. And we were then told to, to implement implied consent, such that if somebody walks through, as you did, I mean, if you walk through the vaccine centre door, you approach the clinician with the syringe in their hand and you roll up your sleeve, you have consented. That's the model we were told to implement. Why did it change? I wish I knew. I really wish I knew. Do you I have any evidence to show that it was changed? I, I, I have lots of regrets. One of them is that I didn't stick a pen drive in my work computer and just take everything on there. Because when I walked away... In October 21, I handed my laptop back, and a lot of very incriminating evidence was in that laptop, and I don't have a lot of those documents anymore. Um, I wish I did, but the certainly the ad, uh, as a vaccine center, we were being prepared to um, to uh, use informed consent. We discussed it as a partnership. We we argued about the model, you know, do we really need a doctor to do it? Yes, we do. Can't we squeeze more than 20 in? No, we can't. 
okay, so it's 20, you know, 20 in, next 20 in, next 20, you know, and it was shuttle them in, get, get, so they're out of the briefing room, into the jabbing room, you know, quick, 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 quick. So, and also you don't make any changed. money anymore. So basically, if you do informed consent and do things properly, there goes all your profit. Yeah. So the fee, so I, 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 I'm not, I don't believe that that was changed. I don't believe it was the finance. I don't think there was a, like the BMA managed to argue successfully that doctors wouldn't make any profit, therefore the government changed their mind. I think the decision was on high for other reasons that we're not doing in informed consent, we're going to go for implied consent. It, it was a fairly quick decision. It, it Normally, if these things were at all contentious, they would take months. It was, it was, it was a matter of days, um, less, certainly less than two weeks, that that discussion was being had with us um, in, in the front line and then changed. Okay, I need to ask you another thing mm. about the jabbing business, the jabbing center. Mm-hmm. What was happening about the cooling of the vaccines? And remember we were told yeah. they needed to be yeah. minus whatever. Yeah. Was that true? Was that real? Yeah, well, the, we were told that, so the um, AstraZeneca vaccine here in the UK, the AstraZeneca was a more, I'd say, slightly conventional in that it was a DNA vaccine. Still very different to previous generations of vaccines. Exactly. That was a fridge product so that was a, a if you like a standard fridge line it would arrive chilled um and we had to keep it in a fridge and protect the cold chain as it's called yeah the the um Pfizer vaccine and subsequently the Moderna vaccine sort of 6 months later they were we were told they were being stored nationally who knows where some bunker somewhere never found out where it was but they were sent to us via courier and we were told they were being stored at minus 80 degrees. They arrived um, packed in dry ice. Uh, or the, you know, certainly in, in the van, I think they were in dry ice. By the time we got them, they were, they were a cardboard box that was starting to defrost. And we could put them in our fridge, our vaccine fridge, and we had to use them within five days of delivery. So at the very that, beginning... That doesn't sound like minus 80. No, that, but they were... That sounds very fudged. So, so the the logic, and, I, and I, I'm not defending this or trying to understand it in any way, but the logic was this is a new novel product, a new experimental um, formulation, uh, and in order to keep it stable, it needs to be transported. When it's moving, it has to be, a, you know, frozen. Yes. And I think this was all... Fixed. The logic is bullshit. Exactly. So I think looking back on this now, I agree with you. I think this was theatre to, to create the... You know, the allure of special holy vaccine, you know, was part of that. Because pharmaceutically, it didn't make so sense. When the vaccine is moving, yeah. then it has I mean, to be it, kept super chilled. Yeah, because, and, and to the point, so when it was, so we had five days to use it. Um, using it meant, um, so the, the actual vial uh, had to be combined with saline. So the, the actual amount of product in the vial was tiny probably less than a mil. And I think something like um, two or three mils of saline had to be added to it, agitated 10 times. It had to be carefully agitated 10 times. Then it had to be used within four hours. So it had to be in an arm within four hours. Okay, hold on a second. So when you added that saline, yeah. was it chilled? Yeah, so the saline was in the fridge as well. So by this time, <laughs> so the... But it's 
But it's two, three degrees Celsius or four degrees, because it yeah. can't be anything lower than that's frozen. Yeah. But it's, so this but whole thing you, about... You're not, you're not understanding. So this so whole thing about being minus 80 degrees, you're adding two, three degrees Celsius saline to it. But it's safe to do it now, Amo, because we're not moving it. Okay? <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not in a van being shaken. Okay. It's, but it's, was, that the wrong, was that the wrong type of agitation? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It wasn't agitated properly. No. So the right agitation <laughs> is, and so this was typically pharmacists or um, other trained people in a vaccine center would add the saline and then would carefully agitate it 10 times. You need to be really trained properly to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a bit like the, you know, I feel wax like, on, wax off. Yeah. Absolutely. So there was accredited people that had to be trained properly to do that. Then there was from, then they had to rest there for 20 minutes or so. Did you get a certificate after this training? I, I, I never trained. I personally never did. Because I, I think if you didn't get a certificate, then I, I think you're missing, a, out. you're missing out. Yeah. It was something to be proud of historically, wouldn't it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that you agitated and yeah. shook this. So, so once these vaccines were prepared, they were very carefully carried by the pharmacist through into the vaccine centre. No, no tremor. No, no, no. And if you fell over and dropped them, go start again. Oh, re- oh, shit. oh yeah, bad, bad news. So, so we had five vaccine stations. So the vials would be given to all the, the doctors or the nurses doing the jabbing. And they had, and there was a time written on. So from the time it was prepared to the time it had to be in the arm was four hours. So we, we ran three hour clinics, three hour jabbing clinics. So the vaccines were prepared at the start and they all timed out just after the clinic closed to the point where, you know, if there was anybody, we got to like the end of the clinic, 10 minutes to go, we were running around outside looking for people to come in because we had six doses left and it was a real shame. It, literally, there was scorn placed on you. This is gold. Gold. You're wasting gold. Absolutely. You're flushing gold down the toilet. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and that's how it was looked upon. And we, we had to report back how many doses we'd wasted. There's a uh. There's a national reporting system, and every clinic, I had to go or log on and say how many doses didn't go into an arm. Um, so this this carried on for months. You know, we we started in early January 21, and we we didn't stop giving second doses till about July 21. We worked all the way through our population. I genuinely did not expect people to turn up for this product. Um, our first day of vaccinating jabbing was our over 75s we we called all our over 75s in it was a horrible cold day there's about an inch of snow it was black ice on the car park uh, we had seven patients over a hundred at that time five of them walked into the vaccine center covered in snow shivering and i had a queue of people outside because we had to socially distance the queue and they were all outside in the snow petrified petrified well no they terrified. weren't they were Lining up with the holy vaccine, they were grateful. They were. This is what broke my heart. I mean, it, it made me really ill, and I, I, I can still feel the feeling that it, it made me very ill in my gut, um, because I, I went into deep lambs to the slaughter. I went into deep grief because these. I was talking to these people outside, talking to them as we were waiting, and they were telling me how grateful they were that this, this was their ticket to freedom. They'd been in nearly nine months of lockdown in their houses. They hadn't seen people. This was the thing that was going to return their normal life to them. And they were so grateful. Love a bit of coercion. <sighs> and, and, you know, my heart just broke. 
Um, we had a 98% uptake rate in our over 75s. Yeah. And I, I then knew that I, I knew I couldn't stay. I knew I had to find a way out. And I, you know, my, my family wanted me to stay. My, my awake friends on the outside said, you've got to stay, dude, because you're our man on the inside. You see it for what it is and you can change it from the inside. And I went, okay. I accept the challenge. And you can't. I, and you can't. I tried. I know, no, I, you can't do that. Dude, I can't. Andrew Wakefield said this to me. You can't have your foot in both camps. No. no. But I believe, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I've always been an optimist. To this day, I, I'm full of hope. I think the future does look bright. Mm. And I always overestimate what I can achieve. And I, but I, I underestimated the size and the strength and the, of the system. And the, the degree to which other people protect the system. Because uh, I really thought logic and evidence in plain sight would, would sway people, but it doesn't. And, and, you know, we know from lots of studies about um, behavior, like Milgram and Ash yeah. and Stockholm, you know, we know that people follow the herd. And that was the thing, Ahmed. I was outside the herd now, I was the problem. You know, because people are safe in the herd, safe from the, the threat of COVID. But Graham out there, unprotected, unjabbed Graham, he's the problem. So stay away from him. He's mad. So listen, you're running this clinic, right? This vaccine clinic for nine, 10 months. At any point, did you guys like mix and match the, the vaccines? Like say, oh, you've had a Pfizer for your first shot. You can have an AstraZeneca right. for the second shot. Did okay. you guys do that? In the end, yes. Initially, that was absolutely not allowed. So we had, at the very beginning, we had AstraZeneca, I think, week one. So we had no control over the vaccines that arrived by, by quantity or type. We were told what we were getting. And sometimes it was one or two, three days notice. So I had to, I mean, on one occasion, we were told we're getting 2,000 vaccines, 2,000 doses. I've got 25,000 patients. I'm running a full-time GP practice and I'm, I've given three or four days notice that I've got 2,000 doses coming and I've got to schedule enough vaccinators and marshals and other people to, to get 2,000 doses into people's arms within five days of the time it left the 80-degree <laughs> storage. So by the time it gets to me, there's like four days left, nearly four days, just over four days. So the clock's ticking. So... So this is how strictly it was controlled. And I knew then it was a military operation. Um, there was one of the, one week we, we got, we probably had got 2,000 patients waiting to be called in. And we were told our delivery was like 300. And I'm going, you're joking. And I knew there was a practice about an hour and a half drive away that 2,000 patients, they were getting 2,000 doses. And they couldn't use it. Probably 1,800 would go in the bin. So I contacted, I went all the way up through the chain, several layers, and it got all the way to the national vaccine manager, who's a GP. And this, even the, and we said, the, 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 the request was, look, the van going to this other practice is going past my door. Can you just drop off their load with me and give my load to them? The answer came back from the national vaccine clinical manager, no. I can't, I can't change it. It's above my pay grade. What, what the hell? So you, you know then you're dealing with a military operation that's outside the NHS. 
Okay, the National Vaccine Implementation Manager could not change a delivery on the request of both. Both practices were saying change it, swap it, couldn't do it. So uh, this vaccine was being delivered to my practice at, uh, I think it was like 6.30 in the morning. I, and this is in February. I had to drive one and a half hours to the other practice, arrive at the same time as their delivery, sign for a thousand of their doses. There was another practice did the same thing. So two practices turned up in, the, in very early morning in the dark and took almost all of their delivery. I drove it back to um, my practice in time to hand it over to my team of pharmacists who made them all up, all the doses up, and we got them all in people's arms within four hours. And I had to do that because you couldn't change the delivery. So I, I give you that answer just to give you the perspective. So when we were told you cannot mix the vaccines, we absolutely couldn't. If you'd had an AstraZeneca first dose, you had to have AstraZeneca second dose. And I think even by the time the boosters came around, the, the advice was still, ideally, you want to give them the same dose. But certainly by September, October 21, it was do what you need to. Yeah, what happened then? Do you not think that's ridiculous? Absolutely. Because drugs, drugs have different modes of action and different drugs interact yeah. differently. No studies yeah. show what AstraZeneca and yeah. Pfizer together do. No, but gone. suddenly that all went out the window. You can yeah. mix and match. And why were no doctors even questioning that? I don't get it. Because they were too deep in it. They, they were too embedded, too invested in it by then. You know, um, I say emotionally invested because I think you, you, you know this. I mean, if, if you'd, if you'd, um, screwed, um, you know, a new ankle bone, a new, a new prosthesis into somebody's ankle for the last twenty years, and you lectured on it. You told all if it suddenly comes around to you and says, "Actually, I'm at, um, we've got a problem with that thing, and uh, you need to fess up and play your part." And you go, "Oh, I can't do that. I'm going to look stupid. I'm, I'm going to lose my my clinical career and um, credibility. Credibility. Um, can't we just make it go away?" Uh, okay, we'll make it go away then. So you don't have to fess up and you can move on. And I think that's that's what's happened to most doctors is just, it's the blue pill. I don't want to know. Don't go into the detail. Please don't tell me anything. Therefore, I'm I'm not part of it. You know, they're, they're trying to isolate themselves. Do you think that flies? No, think that flies? of course it doesn't. Because it, it doesn't sit with your soul, does it? If... I, I can only imagine what it must be like to be somebody who's trying to do that. I mean, I, I've never, ever done something that I believe to be wrong, knowingly. If, if, if to me, if something's not right, I'll say it, no, uh, no matter what the personal cost. That's just who I am. Yeah, well, you can see that I've got the same problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So it, 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 I cannot understand the mindset. It, it goes beyond money. And, it, and professional hubris, it's, it's, it's something deeper in the psyche of, of some humans that they're able to hold in their head co competing truths and move on and seem to operate perfectly normally. Like, I really want to think the people who have made my life misery, the fellow doctors, mm. are evil, bad people. Mm. But then I think maybe they they genuinely think they're doing the right thing, that yeah. I'm the evil bad one. Mm. I'm the evil, dangerous doctor. And by punishing me, by ruining me, 
they're doing the world a good service and they're yeah. better doctors for it. I think that's how they justify it to themselves. Absolutely. And I, I've had those same doubts and <clears throat> I've, you know, I, I, you know, I, I am quite confident in my, in what I believe I know. I've always been quite challenging to my colleagues and probably seen as a bit of an awkward sod, you know, and I, I wear that badge with pride really now. Um, but I've, uh, I've always you know, tried to, um, as far as I see it, help other people see, you know, raw data and, and to help them come to the understanding of what the truth really is. Um, I don't think that's common, unfortunately, in a system like the NHS, you know, that is set up in order to preserve itself. And I think particularly with doctors, I think the way doctors are trained is, I mean, it, it is, I mean, you've been through it. I never have, but I've spoken to many doctors who've been, you know, and they talked to me about how they were trained. And it is, it is a, um, it's, it's a very stressful, you know, um, you know, few years, decades of your life. And you come out having invested so much of your time um, and, and you come out almost as automatons. You know, you're very intelligent people, but you've been taught not to challenge authority. You've been taught to do what you're told. And you're too busy, to be, to be honest, to, to read uh, paper, clinical papers and look at evidence. You know, show me the headline, show me the abstract. Is, is good enough for most people, isn't it? Most doctors. And also, medico-legally, the safety in numbers. You know, we know medico-legally, if you're doing what your colleagues do, you're okay. Even if you've harmed somebody, you're not going to get struck off. You're not going to get fined. You're not going to be made an example of. But if you do something different to your colleagues, even if you saved lives, even if you reduced your waiting list, you're a problem. Isn't that mental? Completely. To be Completely. judged now by the standard of your peers, mm. even if the standard is substandard yeah. and not to be judged by what is right. So I've, um, in what, my talks... What I've, the frack? What the frack? So I've, um, I, I use this to explain to the public about why do doctors do, because a lot of people say to me, why do doctors do what they do? And I say, well, you've got to understand they're holding a hammer. Everything is a nail. And the other thing I say to people is um, common symptoms aren't normal. So doctors are trained... Well, every day you're, you're just seeing a conveyor belt of people who are in disease unwell so you come to ex you come to believe that that's normal it's not normal what is normal is wellness and independence and health yet your clinical system is showing you the averages of the people who come through the clinical system so whether it's vitamin d levels or cholesterol levels or you know a bone scan that the, the normal range in the, in the clinical system is actually a subgroup of ill people. Mm. And um, that, so when healthy people are tested, quite often their, their metrics are out of whack and all these red lights come up. Oh, your, your LDL cholesterol is really high, Graham. And I'm going, yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. You need to be on a statin, you know. Uh, well, no, it's high because my energy trafficking system around my body is working really well and I'm moving lots of lipids around my body and lots of energy. Oh, no, you're going to die of a heart attack, Graham. You know? Do you want to hear something really funny? Go. So I was looking up your Twitter feed and then I went from one thing to another and I came across this article about, we need to talk about Zoe by Deborah Cohen and Margaret McCartney. 
Mm-hmm. And then I started reading the comment section because the main article was behind the paywall and I go, I ain't got no money to go behind the paywall. <laughs> but what was really funny is the people's comments. And it was really, really sad, mate. It's exactly what you've just touched upon, LDLs. It's like, listen to this. It's pretty basic common sense. More vegetables, less sugar, less meat. I was like, no, it's not more vegetable. Less sugar, yes, but not less meat. They got got one out of three things, right? (laughs) One out of three. It's like, but this is the indoctrination that's in there now. And I kept reading through the comments and the same shit keeps coming on. And I had this great one. The 75-year-old lady goes, I've stopped it. I quit Zoe today by coincidence because of the ne- of the negative effects it was having on my health. What on earth did I think it could teach me at the age of nearly 75 that I yeah. didn't already know? <laughs> Marvellous. Marvellous. But, that, but that's, it seems to be that, that common sense, if you like, that, that intuitive inquiry, internal inquiry, is, is not present in, in the younger generations. Can I just read this one more comment? Yeah. Sorry, I'm really sorry, but this, this is hilarious. I joined Zoe in June and I'm reaping the benefits. It sounds great, right? It has steered me towards eating more vegetables, pulses and beans. And I'm like, oh God, here we go. My sugar cravings are completely gone. That's good. That's good. I was hoping to lose a few pounds. It hasn't happened. My weight remains the same. I have a cholesterol, cholesterol check coming up soon. This will be the ultimate test. I would be very disappointed if my bad cholesterol hasn't come down significantly. I hope Zoe Harcum isn't listening to this. <laughs> bad cholesterol. cholesterol. Like there's there's a thing as bad cholesterol. Yeah. But I mean, what I'm trying to say is these comments to me just tell me how brainwashed mm. the public is. And the clinicians. The clinicians, how indoctrinated. You know, this idea that a healthy diet is low in meat. Low in fat, yeah. You know, well, I, I, what I, the f- was it? Um, was it um, J. Edgar Hoover in America? You know, went to the. It might have been Eisenhower. I forget. You know, I'm sure one of your listeners will correct this, but the the quote was, "Mr. President, when the American public um, falsely believe everything, you know, something along these lines, you know, our work will be complete." Oh God. Yeah. So th- there's been this deliberate policy of inversion. You know. Um, going on for decades now since, you know, post-war, you know, the late 40s, 50s. And it made its way into medicine. It's made its way into the food industry and every other industry. And I, a lot of what we've been indoctrinated to believe is actually almost the opposite. And that's kind of the maxim I've been running by for the last five or six years is whatever's on the news, do the opposite. If it concerns my own well-being, you know, diet or anything, just do the opposite of what they're telling you and you, you'll be fairly close to what's actually optimal. Mate, that's 100% right. Mm. Just go against every single thing that you've been yeah. taught and told and you're going to be fine. Um, I can't, I can't find the quote. Yeah, I can't find the quote. I thought I could maybe find the quote. Mm. But yeah, he was yeah. a nice fellow, wasn't yeah, he? So Mr. President. J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, he was a nice chap. Yeah. He was a nice individual. I think a lot of things started to go very badly worse, you know, in that post, post-war, you know, the 1946, 47, 48. I think a lot of the genesis of what we're now seeing was actually put in place then. Um, and, you know, I know there's lots of people talked about this, you know, there's various 
famous people tried to stand up against this in the early years, you know, JFK and others, and they they all got exited, didn't they? Um, but here we are, it's now visible. So I think this is positive. You know, the if their plan was working, I mean, we wouldn't know there was a plan. We'd already be here in their shit show. No, yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. So listen, you then left the jabbing centre. Mm. What have you done since then? So October 21, I, I uh, walked away. Essentially, my, my partners, without my knowledge, had a vote of no confidence in me. And I was told there was, there was an investigation into my, because I was labelled as an anti-vaxxer. So um, I was put on gardening leave to... The was, anti-vaxxer absolutely. who was running the vaccine centre. Yeah, absolutely. I was labelled as an anti-vaxxer, tinfoil hatter, conspiracy theorist. These are all words written down. So I was, after a two-week investigation, I was sent a nine-page rap sheet. And I responded with a 55-page rebuttal, which knocked everything completely over. There was no evidence. I had a four-hour hearing with one of my partners. I requested a meeting with all the partners, which was refused. And they went on to vote me out. And others voted no confidence. And when I learned that they'd had that vote without my knowledge, I said, I'm gone. Bye. So I walked away on a Friday. Um, I hope they paid you off. Um, no. But you're a partner. Um, sorry. So I, I, I did eventually get my uh, investment back uh, but it took uh, in fact I've only just a couple of months ago received the last instalment but for nearly two years I got virtually nothing back uh, and we're talking a large amount of money here you know we're talking north of five figures um, so that was our personal money so I'm not I've not earned a penny since I mean I've not worked since so what I've um, I I I, I the confidence to leave came when I joined the local Stand in the Park group because that was the time when I realised I wasn't mad. Um, and, I, and I actually got asked to do some public speaking. So they, they said, please, will you come and do a talk locally? Um, and they, I said, well, I'm, a bit, I'm a kind of a bit worried that they might come for me, so can we keep it quiet? I said, yeah, yeah, keep it quiet. They invited 50 people, 200 came. Somebody who came said, would you come to another talk? 500 came. <laughs> and this is late 21. I then had the BBC on the phone. I had, you know, and I got really scared. I had people contacting me saying, look, they're going to come for you. You know, you might find yourself hanging from a doorknob. Um, a doorknob? Oh, yeah. You know, you know how people are exited. That doorknob has to be quite high up. Yeah. You're six foot two. Oh, absolutely. That's yeah. a big door. I had... People showing me pictures of um, the technology that exists to take people out. I got really scared. What technology? Things like drones. You know, we, we, I don't know if these things exist, but somebody showed me a video that said, "Look, they've actually got drones that can break into you know, like you know, like, like aerial drones that can. What the first one breaks your window, and then two or three come in, and they they do facial recognition, and they come and you know, they they blow you up basically." And I got really scared. I, I that's believe, like, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's happening, but I don't think they would do that. It's too messy. It's too messy. And also I'm, too messy. I'm not important enough. But the reason I mentioned that, I mean, is I, 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 I did a few public talks in, in the north of England, late 21, early 22. And then I got really scared. and I kind of hid, you know, I was closing the curtains and thinking, right, they're, they're going to get me. So I, I, I sort of shrunk away a bit. Um, but I, I'd, I'd found um, a, a group. There's a, there's a, I'll give them a plug. We put, hope we put the link in, but the, um, the redpillrevolution.com. 
it um, is a website and there's a book, the Red Pill Revolution book. Um, and the, 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 I see the lead author of that book is a, is a naturopath called Dr. Jeremy Ayers. So I, I'd reached out when I was still in the NHS, but you know, right at the end, I reached out to Jeremy uh, as, as, as a mentor, if you like. And um, I've, stayed, I've been working with him ever since. So what I'm doing now with Jeremy and others is where we are uh, building the alternative. Well, it's not really the alternative. It's actually the original. We're looking to restore the original true healthcare system around the world. That's our ambition. You know, we're looking at primarily the UK and America, but we already have members from all over the world that are working with Dr. Jeremy. And um, so we have a, a membership community. We have a private forum where people can come and learn about true natural health. Mm. Um, what, what's the website called? It's so if you so jeremyairs.com, A Y R E S. Um, that's Jeremy's homepage. And through there, you can um, join um, what's called the 90 day protocol and um, the membership group. Naturally better. Naturally better, yeah. So what we're working on is naturally better. So Jeremy is a, originally a chiropractor and he's a, a naturopractic consultant. He's extremely gifted. And what he does is he blends all the, the um, ancient learning from the Eastern medicine with the best of true science. And I'm not, so most of what we call science and healthcare is actually scientism. It's a religion. It's not science. So. The people like Dr. Jack Cruz, you know, he, he is a very key part or his, his teachings and evidence are a very key part of what Dr. Jeremy um, has brought into Naturally Better. So the understanding how light and water, fourth phase water, easy water, um, you know, understanding how all of these contribute to human health is exactly what we're about. So that's what our community is learning. So we've got, we've got a membership group um, that's growing fast. And then we're working on a couple of other projects that I'd like to quickly mention, which hopefully will come to fruition um, in the next couple of weeks. So the first is um, we are working on a naturopractic coaching course. So we are going to train an army of naturopractic coaches in true healthcare. Um, so this course is going to start later this year. Uh, it's got about 40 modules, and we're currently working on this now. And uh, in subsequent years, we're going to train naturopractic consultants. And we see existing clinicians in the healthcare system. This is what you need. You need to build a parallel community. Yeah. That's parallel system. That's exactly what we're doing. We can't change this old no, one. No, we, so we've realized that. There's no point shouting at the old system no, complaining. No, no, no. We've no, got no. to build the alternative. Yeah. And it isn't really the alternative. It's the original. Um, so an army of coaches. And in fact, I was speaking to some nurses last uh, two nights ago at one of my talks, and they said, we're in. How do we get on this course? Because we're, we've left and we want to retrain and work naturally better. Um, so that's the first initiative. The next one, um, which hopefully will interest uh, yourself and, and other clinicians, we're, we've, we're going to launch a lifeboat. We call it Project Lifeboat. So this is a safe place where clinicians who are probably still in the system yet have concerns or feel trapped, you know, and probably want to leave but can't because they need to pay the bills. A safe place where all these clinicians can come and interact um, in this naturally better environment. And we're going to 
talk about what, what it takes to be human, what it takes to be a healthy human. How do you make sick people well? What should the new system look like? And I hesitate to say system because it doesn't really need to be a system. It needs to be ground up organic. Um, and it will be built by the, the experts that are in the system at the minute, but also ex- experts outside the system. You know, even to the extent of tribal health, you know, Aboriginal health, the, the American Indians, the, the African tribes, the medicine men of South America, they all will have something. So Jeremy's got this vision of what he calls a multiversity. It's a university that's open to all who can contribute to the wellness of mankind going forward. So we, we, this is the vision we have is to create um, a learning environment that's safe away from prying eyes of the regulators and the current um, detractors, where we can come together, talk honestly, and start to build back better. The regulators just seem to be enforcers. Of course. <clears throat> yeah, they're, they're just poli- they're a police. They're, they're an arm of the state. Yeah, they really are. I mean, that sounds all very good. Mm. You, I, I think this is, a, this is the way we move forward. Um, we, need, we need to be building a parallel yeah we need to build back better without them 100 percent. i'm going to read out something that was on my twitter feed i posted something it's not mine um i reposted it but i really liked it said the policy makers are right at the top and who are these policy makers so right at the top mate you got the bank of international settlements they ultimately control the money supply mm-hmm. and thus the global markets, trade and national economies. And underneath that, you've also got the central banks. Mm-hmm. They are going direct and directly funding the government spending. Monetary policy has effectively become fiscal policy. Yep. Also within the policymakers, but the third tier is the WEF, the Council of Foreign Relations, the Club of Rome, Chatham yep. House, the Rockefellers. These think tanks and global representative groups, they formulate the policies to achieve the global public-private partnership objectives. The resource allocation is determined by the Bank of International Settlement Central Banks, but they are working in partnership Mm -hmm. with the think tanks and other representative bodies to convert that into global political policy. Then underneath that, you've got the policy distributors. Who actually dishes everything out? You got the United Nations, you got the IMF, you got the IPCC, you got the World Bank, you got the WHO, you got these philanthropists, you got global corps, you got NGOs. These organizations and bodies take policy directors from the policy makers that we've mm-hmm. just discussed and distribute them to the policy enforcers. Yeah, now we get to the policy enforcers. Who are the policy enforcers? Well, first of all, the national governments. You got the civil service. You get the NHS, you get the, I don't know what the RRU is, IPSO, Ofcom, police, military courts, local government, statutory agencies, GMCs, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And you got selective scientific authorities like SAGE, MHRA, JCVI, CDC, FDA, NIH, EMA, AMA. The, and these policy enforcers exploit or work with the selected scientific authorities to justify the policies they are required to enforce. Mm-hmm. We're enforcing this for, you know, because science, because we're good. This Follow is the, the right thing. Summit. Follow the science. 
Are you, are you anti-science? Yeah. Trust the experts. Are you anti-science? Yes. Policy propagandists then come underneath that. And hybrid warfare specialists, MSM, censorship, shadow banning, fact checkers, full fact, social media platforms, hybrid warriors, 77th Brigade, um, anti-hate campaigners, CCE, CCDH. The propagandists and hybrid warfare specialists are tasked with convincing the public to accept and hopefully believe in the policies. They use psychological manipulation, disinformation, misinformation, censorship, and propaganda. Now, who are the policy subjects? You and me and the public, yep. the plebs. We're in the on farm. We are the subjects of the policy which cascades down through the government. Um, so the global public-private partnership system. We largely pay for the system. So not only are we the victims of the system, we pay for it. Yeah. We pay for the system through taxation and public borrowing. The system is designed to exploit us. But we are increasingly unnecessary component or as a GPP look to seize the global commons. We are the plebs. We built the prison. We pay for the prison. We, we, we've moved into the prison. Yeah, willingly. Willingly. Yeah. And we don't even know it's a prison. We're glad to be here. And we're thankful yeah. for the prison. Yeah. We're Save thankful me. for the tick. Yeah. Thank you, tick. Keep sucking the blood out of me. In fact, it's, it is me. The tick is me. Yeah. Fuck. Sorry, frack. Ah, oh, Lord. Absolutely. But I. So but before I, we end on that, yeah. tell me, my friend. <laughs> oh, you had your laptop open. Was there anything? You had yeah. a screen, something from our friend, Fergus Fergus Greenwood, Fergus Greenwood yeah. <clears throat> uh, hi, Fergus. Great guy. So, Fergus has um, identified these five groups, and I think he talked about it on, on your podcast. And I, I've made a, a sort of picture of it because that's how I, I like I'm very visual. So, he talked about the ringleaders, the strivers, the normies, the doubters, and the rebels. And he talked about their motivations and, and their strengths and their mode of action, but he also talked about how to flip them. So I think that's where I'm at now is, you know, we need to flip. We need, we need to pay less attention to the system because the more attention we pay it, the more we legitimize it. 100%. The Amen. more energy we give it. And I'm, I'm over that now. I'm over it. So we, we you know, the ringleaders right at the very top, they're probably out of our reach, but we need to show them um, that we have evidence of their guilt. We need to tell them that they're guilty and we know it and we're going to come for them one day. The strivers, so these are the, the, and he gave an example of doctors and MPs. So the strivers who are still compliant and complicit, you know, because they are benefiting. We need to show them what's coming for them and tell them that they've been the useful idiots. Just like Nuremberg. We know we see you and one day we will come for you. We need to scare them a bit. I think, I think that's important. Yeah. I think that's the only thing they're going to yeah. be motivated by. Yeah, they can't. Logic won't do it. Appealing no. to their better nature won't do it. No, we no. need to say, look, your gravy train is coming to an end very, very messily for you. And there might be a rope hanging by yeah. a tree if you're not careful. and You so might be ending up there. Yeah, because remember, just as in Nuremberg, the, the guys at the top escaped. In fact, they all got promoted and found great jobs in America. Yeah, running NASA and God yeah. knows what. CIA. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. 
Um, but it was it was the useful idiots that hanged. Yeah. That hanged. So just remember that. Following orders. Yeah. The normies in the middle, um, these are the ones who just don't see it yet. They're probably asleep. They still think they're in, you know, a comfortable existence and the vaccine, the holy jab. Reading The Guardian. Reading The Guardian and watching the BBC. And David Attenborough is wonderful. Yeah. So we need Polar to, bears are dying. Yeah. Save so, them. So we need to be kind to them, as Fergus said. We need to communicate with kindness, reality, and not expect to do much very quickly, but expect them one day to come back with a question. And when they come back with a question, then we can flip them. Um, then underneath the normies, there's the doubters. These are the sceptical, scared ones who are, know there's something wrong but can't leave. And he said, um, we need to scare them more than the, they're scared of the government. So just like them, I was scared of leaving. I was scared of the future. But we need to say, look, come over here. The water's actually quite nice. It's certainly nicer than what you're going to have over there very soon. So you need to come and join us quickly. Um, and then there's the rebels, which is us. We're already out. You know, we're the bullshit detectors. So I, I love that. You know, I love that graphic. Thank you, Fergus. I think that's um, very powerful. And that's so we need to focus on the future. We need to keep optimistic. You know, I, I've, I know it's easy to be fearful. Uh, and I, I've been through fear. I've been through anger. I've been through grief. Um, these are all sort of negative, dark energies. Mm. We need to remain positive and light. And we've talked about magnetism and light and frequency. And that's, you know, I, I, I was taught that the human body is a bag of chemicals. Mr. Pharmacist, your profession is built on the human body being just a bag of chemicals, you know, drugs and receptors and tissues. That's just bullshit. <laughs> You know, the I now know and only am starting to, you know, vaguely understand that the human body is way, way, way more interesting and magical than that. We are beings of light, just as Jack Cruz talked about. Our mitochondria are photosynthesizing light. You know, we're, we're harnessing the Earth's magnetism. We're doing it all through easy water. And actually, you know, Sarah Pugh said our food energy is only a third of our total energy production anyway. That's mental. Yeah. So... Who knows what we don't know yet? But So I have ultimate faith in my body to heal myself. So Jeremy, Dr. Jeremy always says this to his patients. Have faith that your body knows only how to cure you. Don't fight against what your body's doing. So those symptoms you are feeling, and you, you, know, you were having a cleanse earlier on, be thankful that your body is helping you prepare for what's next. Your body is already ahead of you in, in cleansing and preparing for the next phase of your life. So be grateful for that and get out of the way. Mm. Don't suppress those symptoms and don't introduce another toxic drug. You know, clear the toxins. That's what your body's doing. Um, so open up the roots of elimination. You know, be thankful when you have a purge, whatever end it comes out of, because your body's getting rid of toxic shit. And a lot of our toxic shit is emotional shit because we've all been traumatized. We've all been brainwashed. We've, uh, they've fucked with our minds, fracked with our minds. You know, that's all in us, and it's all physical injuries that our body has yet to process. So as you cleanse and as you get better, these things will come back to you, and you'll have to revisit them, but you'll deal with them and you'll move on, and you'll be stronger for it. So, you know, I, I'm full of hope now. I'm full of optimism. You know, they've, they've overreached their plan. They, they're out of ideas. Uh, they, it's visible now. You know, the emperor has no clothes. 
and it's obvious. And, you know, a lot of people would say spiritually the war is already won. You know, the, you know, um, people will talk about, um, you know, it's checkmate. It's just a matter of time now. Mate, there's a problem. We've been speaking for almost three hours. (laughs) And I promised my wife it's going to be two hours and I was going to come up and massage her head and nurse her and I feel bad now. But I also feel bad because I I actually could talk to you for hours more. I mean, there's so much other stuff we need to talk about. You need to promise me you're going to come back. Of course. I will definitely come back, mate. No, I mean, in about three, four months' time in the summer when the weather's better. But I feel bad. I can just, I can just sense my wife is like, "Where are you? You promised you'd come and massage my head." <laughs> you need, to, you need to go and do that. But listen, we've got my signature question. Before mm. you answer that, I just want to say to a few people. Some people message me, and I just want to sh- do some shout outs, mm. right? So I had Heather, Heather Anderson, leave me a really nice comment. She, she bought me a coffee on my buy me a coffee, and she said, "You are my hero." To have a son with your integrity would be a gift from God. Sending prayers. Thank you. Heather Anderson, you made me cry with that comment. And I just want to say, I love you, man. God bless you. And then there's Malcolm, who basically said, I feel the words thank you adequately cover my appreciation for what you have sacrificed to stand on ethics and principles. Wish I could do more for you and your family. Mm. That's nice. Uh, and one last comment. And then, and this is a great one. And this person chose to remain anonymous. And she does a quote by Brianna Weist. For, and she goes, and this is for all the good people fighting for the truth and a better world. So it, it covers you and me both. Your new life is going to cost you your old one going to cost you relationships and friends it's going to cost you being liked and understood man and i get that because people don't understand my colleagues don't understand me but it doesn't matter it doesn't matter because the people who are meant for you are going to meet you on the other side and you're going to build a new comfort zone around the things that actually move you forward and instead of being liked, you're going to be loved. Correct. Instead of being understood, you're going to be seen. All you're going to lose is what was built for a person you no longer are. It's beautiful. Let it go. Yeah. Dude, how, how fracking I've, cool is that? I've got I, goosebumps. I've got, I've got goosebumps. I've, I've got, got goosebumps. Shivers, yeah. I wished I'd Woo. been able to read that about three years ago. Yeah. Because that, that is a wonderful guide. And the, I mean... Um, in some ways, it's easier now to face all of this than it was three years ago. And Dr. Jeremy faced this 30 years ago. I mean, he looks at me and he goes, dude, you're so late to the party. Yeah. Me too, man. I know. But, but what makes it easier for us, Ahmed, is that the, the pain and the, the life experiences that these people have gone through can be expressed in words just like that, that mm. we can now read and go, you're right i feel okay i'm not mad i'm not confused i am and, and that's exactly what's happened to me i mean that every talk i give people come up to me and give me a hug and go you know guy i i think i know you yeah we I, i'm sure i'm sure i've met you before and i think our tribe is assembling and whether you believe in soul souls and or not what's happening is where our energies are coming together 
we're all meeting at this time and we are resonating. And when we resonate, there'll be no stopping us. Mm. Amen. Absolutely. And I love this new tribe. And, you know, I've met so many wonderful people. I get, I've got so many nice supporters and followers and it totally validates that what I'm doing is right. So I'm, I'm in a good place now. Yes, I am in a very good place. You are. So listen, um, you're on your deathbed. You've lived a long, healthy life. You've not worried about your bad cholesterol. Your bad cholesterol. Um, you not you not been taking pesky statins or anything like that. Uh, for for a pharmacist, you've done a, a, a crazy job of not s- taking any drugs. Mm. What advice would you give to your family and your loved ones before you pass on? So what I'd say to everybody is is trust your innermost feelings. You know, be that a gut feeling or your inner calling. Trust it and believe in it and don't listen to the doubters out there um, because ultimately we're all when you connect with your your life's path your soul purpose when you connect with that you know and it is a no it's not a belief it's not a feel you know it and there's something Im- Im- immensely empowering about knowing something when you feel it you, when you feel that you know it's right and you go with that and don't let anybody persuade you not to because all they're doing is trying to it's your ego and the people holding on to your ego the the avatar that you were it's people holding on to that trying to say please don't leave because i'll be less comfortable if you leave this space but you've got to go when you walk through that gate that door and you look back and you go what what took me so long because Mm. on the other side it's beautiful so i'd say that i'd also say somebody gave me this um, a couple of years ago, little domino. Because when, when I was doing my public talks, um, I, after about six months, I felt nothing's happening. The dials aren't moving. Why, why am I doing this? I'm, I'm putting myself in harm's way. I'm getting lots of criticism. People think I'm mad. Um, and then somebody came up to me and give, gave me a domino and said, be the domino. You never know what will result. And subsequently, I've, I've got the shivers Mm. subsequently a lot of people have come to me clinicians and other groups and said uh i mean there was a group of um like the the 100k the nhs 100k nurses Mm. in my local hospital they i you know they reached out to me and i went to their meeting i spoke to them and they said you know we we only set up this because one of us came to your first talk i didn't know Wow. I've had paramedics come to me and say, the only reason I'm doing what I'm doing now is because I came to your first talk. Wow. And, you know, the ripples are unseen initially. So when, mm. you, when, you, doubt, when you doubt yourself, do, just do what you can today and, don't, and be kind to yourself, even if it's a small act. Ooh, I've got shivers now. I needed to hear this. Yeah, be kind to yourself and, and, even, and don't think that you should be doing more than you can. Be grateful that you can do something and don't expect it to return to you. But I can tell you, I mean, it will. Everything returns to you. The karma will come back to you in time, mm. in this time, in our time. And I don't think we need to wait for another time. It's, it's, not, it's coming close now. I truly believe it. Do you know, that was an amazing answer. I know you listened to my podcast. Because as soon as I asked it, you're like, boom, with your answer. Normally people go, ooh, wow, that's a hard one, right? And you're like, you're ready. You're I'm ready. ready. I'm ready. I'm always ready. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. No, that, that was a great answer. Can I ask you something? Mm. 
How far did you have to drive to come here today? Um, well, I so about four hours down the country. So I, I live in the northwest, but I was actually doing a talk in the southwest uh, two days ago. So I did that, um, and I've stayed hotel and with family uh, a couple of nights. But I've, I've about an hour and a half across the country to you today. And then another four-hour drive tonight. I'm going back to my family's so an hour okay. and a half. Uh, then I'm, I'm doing another talk even further south at the weekend. Oh, wow. And I've probably got a six-hour drive after that. But I love doing these things because I meet real people. Exactly. And I hug people come up and hug me, and um, people say, thank you for what you're doing. And that, that is the domino. That's when you realize the domino is real, and then it's becoming. It's a, there is a big domino at the end of this when they, <sighs> they will fall. 100%. Everyone, please, can you look at, for Graham Atkinson, Red Pill Pharmacist, I'll put all the details up on the website and on the podcast and everything. And all of you out there listening, I fucking love you. Graham, do you love them? I love, I love this community. I love you. I love you too, man. All right. Bye-bye, everybody.